boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, lads and lassies, and those who don't subscribe to the gender, welcome to GOT Doc Questions Podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, we're actually keeping to a schedule now. This is good. Uh, you know, of a sort. I mean, the, the mere fact that we're actually trying to record once a week is a vast improvement for us. Yeah, I know. It's big. So, yeah, we are recording again. This is the week after we re- released our last episode. Uh, which was coverage of Season 1, Episode 5 of HBO's Game of Thrones, The Lion and the Wolf. Today we are uh, reviewing Season 1, Episode 6, A Golden Crown. Ominous name to the episode, Spencer. Uh, quite a bit. And when I watched it for the first time, I had yet to read the books, I had no clue what it was going to refer to. I thought it was going to talk, discuss some aspect of Robert's uh, kingship rather than what it turned it up being. Yeah, I think it uh, threw everybody for a loop there in the final about five to eight minutes. Um Spencer, before we uh, jump into the episode, let's do a little housekeeping. Oh, okay. I want to talk about uh, the other pods we have here on the Mangum Talks podcast channel. We have Mangum Reads, which you're a part of. What was the last episode you did a Mangum Reads, Spencer? We decided to take a second stab at a uh, writer's work that we... Uh, we'd read a work by Nnedi Okorafor um, entitled Binti that we all came to the conclusion about 10 minutes into the podcast that none of us liked, which... Made for a bit of a rough read. I mean, I, I particularly enjoyed the episode of Terry Pratchett when both you and BJ had a lot of fun at my expense that you both hated the book, but it didn't work as well in terms of discussing Binti. So we decided to try short stories by the same author, and luckily, we all liked them quite a bit more and had a lot of fun discussing them for the greater part of three hours. Great. Okay, so that's Mangum Reads. We have Mangum Talks Hoops coming up. We have a special guest star on Mangum Talks Hoops coming soon. That's a teaser, what is what they call it in the biz, Spencer. And then we have Whiskey on the Weekends. We did a episode of that a couple weeks ago. And uh, Spencer, I don't know about you, but I got some whiskey in the... Uh, I got some whiskey today. I did not get whiskey today, but then again, I'm in something resembling a third world version of America, so it might take a bit longer for basic mail to reach me. That's true. It's got, got to get through the FEMA checkpoints down there in Florida. FEMA checkpoints, massive series of alligator attacks, invasive birds the size of condors. There's a few obstacles for the mailman to get by. <laughs> but yeah, we'll have it. So because we have whiskey, uh, or I have whiskey, Spencer will have whiskey soon, uh, we'll have another episode of Whiskey on the Weekends. And then our final pod that we want to talk about before we jump into the episode, we have Mangum Laughs, which is a podcast where myself and uh, BJ talk about stand-up comedy sets from a collection of stand-up comedy Done at the, done at the, uh, the Montreal uh, Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. It's the biggest comedy festival in the world. Uh, it's huge. It's on my bucket list to go to. Uh, and it's called Comedians of the World, which is on Netflix. So BJ and I are ticking through those. Uh, we've done, we've recorded two. I haven't set the podcast up yet. So uh, when that drops, we actually get it out on iTunes, Stitcher, and www.mangumtalks.com. We'll have at least two episodes to start with. So you'll get some content from that right away. I'm excited. That's going to be fun. Yeah, BJ and I have a lot of fun doing it. We just we, we drop on it. It's only about 20, 30 minute sets in this uh, in this special, so it doesn't go that long. But uh, we've, we're having a lot of fun with it. Well, you know, as we prove with this show, the actual length of the material we're discussing or reviewing has no relevance for how long we can talk about it. Yeah, but how much you like it does. So, like, what BJ and, <laughs> what BJ and I are finding out is that when we don't like a set. It's like oh it, god, it's like fifteen minutes. But you, me, and you, we like every even even the infamous season seven uh, episode six, Beyond the Wall uh, <laughs> episode review where we really trashed it. We still like the episode. It's not like we're watching something we don't want to watch. Oh, and even and even when we're criticizing it, we're having a lot of fun criticizing it. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. Well, let's jump into it. Season one, episode six of Golden Crown. We have the intro. Previously on, uh, I like that there is a reference to, um, I believe someone is, I wrote this note down, but somebody's talking about Gendry. It says he, oh, no, 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 sorry, not Gendry. It's uh, one of the, um, one of Robert's bastards uh, mm. that Ned visits, uh, I think in the brothel. And, oh, yeah. And girl she said, yeah, she says he has his nose, his black hair. So they're right away. They're putting that on your, on your radar. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get the eerie in the opening credits. I think this is the first time we've seen that. I, again, can we talk again, just how lovely the opening credits are? It, it's just a, how creative were they were when they thought of these things in terms of the, the building world around them as we approach them. Yeah. You, yeah. I, I completely agree. Um, love it. And I noticed that the episode was directed by Daniel Minahan. Um, hmm, this is not somebody they brought back. Um, he only did season one. I think he only did one episode. Uh, but he did also directed American Crime Story, which is the um, hmm. the fictionalized sort of version of, uh, of the O.J. Simpson trial. Well, I I can't speak to the rest of the material. I've actually not seen American Crime Story yet, but ultimately, depending on this episode, it was, it was very solid. I, did, I didn't think it was quite as good as the last one, but he had some, he's got some directing chops if this is testament to his work. Yeah, I agreed, but it's a little hard for me to tell just how good these directors really are because the scripts are so strong because it's so much based on the source material. Um, Valid point. Though in terms of just stimulating sheer agoraphobia, we're going to talk about a fun scene for you, I'm sure, here coming up. Yikes. Okay, we start with King's Landing. uh, And Ned wakes up. He's in a bed and King Bobby B and Cersei are standing over him. Ned appears to be sweating. Now, I can't tell if that's due to the injury or the fact that he's a Stark because he's been sweating since he's gotten in King's Landing. (laughs) You'd think he would have adjusted his wardrobe at some point. Oh, no. He he only brought a couple outfits, man. He doesn't... uh, They don't have shorts in Winterfell. (laughs) (laughs) I I like that with uh, Jorah, he's a man of the North, and we see him mostly wearing northern leathers, everything else, until basically after this episode, where I think like the actor eventually decides, can I wear something more breezy? I'm in the damn desert, please. Ned, on the other hand, never makes that transition. No, no, he does not. Um, So they're standing over him when he wakes up, and he says he'd rise, but he can't. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is one of the first times in this series where they let Nina he- Lena Headley just go to an 11 because she is fired up in this scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, she's standing behind. She's still, well, there's about to be. She's, she's, <laughs> she's standing behind King Bobby B and just belts out, do you know what your wife has done? And he says, she did nothing I did not command. Mm-hmm. And then the king, I love, yo, King Bobby B is the best because he doesn't even have to say it. He doesn't have to say, Ned, what you just said is wrong. He just acts as if that has already been said in the conversation because then the next thing he says to Ned is, I didn't know she had it in her. <laughs> so he completely just bree- yeah. <laughs> breezes over it immediately. He's like, okay, well, that's obviously bullshit. Don't even address that. Let's cut back to it. Yeah, King has no pretense that Ned actually ordered Kat to take Tyrion. Uh, they start bickering a little bit. And it, it, and it not to be fair to Ned, I mean, Cersei's just like all over him. Um, which is kind of a lot to take in if you're just waking up from a massive leg injury. But Ned's holding his own. And then finally the king says, What about if you shut your mouths? And the king says, Cat needs to release Tyrion. Uh, she's had her fun. Uh, Cersei claims Ned left the brothel drunk and picked a fight with Jamie in the streets. Now, let me tell you this about Cersei. I will give her credit. When she decides to lie, she tells whoppers. Because that is... She didn't even try to make that believable. She just went to no. as far... Cra- like. Who the fuck believes that? 
Yeah, seriously, there's three people in this room. You got Ned, you got Robert, and you got you. You ain't winning the crowd with that story. <laughs> no one's going to believe that, particularly the audience you're speaking to. When she tells a lie, boy, she will tell a whopper. Um, so this reminds me of um, a scene we had earlier in this uh, season where Cersei is talking to Joffrey. I think she's really trying to counsel him. And she says something along the lines of, when you're king, the truth will be what you make it. So I think this is kind of the same logic here, right? Like she's like, she just does the thing that like, you know, unnamed politicians do where you, if you just say the thing over and over again, that isn't true. Like people just like, yeah, I guess that's true. So I think that's her, that's Cersei's general strategy, but she also just, just got a set of, uh, you know, I don't work blue, but, uh, she's got a lot of uh, moxie, I would say. Just a bit. Yeah. And, uh, it's a level of moxie that is probably not ideal for this moment, as shown by Robert's immediate reaction to it. <laughs> Quiet, woman! And Ned has to go get Jamie, uh, which is a bold move on his part. Like, I mean, what? what? <laughs> He's like, well, first off, Ned, how are you going to do that? I mean, you got one leg and like 12 guards at this point. Um, I'll also say that if this is keeping to the book too, he is also high as shit on Milk of the Poppy opium um, to deal with just the massive crippling pain of his leg being speared through the back. So he's crippled, he's high, he can barely move and is apparently suffering from, you know, the sh uh, a fever from the injury or from the opium itself. This isn't ideal riding north conditions, but I fully believe that Ned would try to do it if they didn't stop him. Yeah, and Ned, uh, by the way, just a little advice from your boy Lee. If you want to get the Kingslayer, you need to get your son. <laughs> yeah. You need to go get Rob. Uh, mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, he says, quiet woman. And she says, I took you for a king. And she says something along the lines of, uh, he says, hold your tongue. Uh, and she says, he's attacked one of my brothers and abducted the other. I should wear the armor and you the gown. So at this point, the king slaps Cersei. Uh, I would like to point out. That it is the stance of the Mangum Talks podcast, of the GOT Got Questions podcast. Um, we do not support hitting women. Mm -hmm. it, I'm glad we've taken this affirmative stance on this issue. It just warms my heart to know that we stand for these you know, modern progressive values. We do not stand for hitting women. That being Please. said... <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're going there now. All right. Where are we going that, with this? That being said, King Bobby B did not lose my vote here. And then he says, she says, I shall wear this like a badge of honor. And oh my gosh, the king must have not had a drink today because he is firing on all cylinders. He says, wear it in silence or I'll honor you again. Which may be line of the episode because that is a hell of a response line right there. Very good. Yeah. I, I, I would make, I think I would make this line of the episode, but it might be a little problematic, Spencer. Some of our sponsors might pull out. Uh, Cersei leaves and the king immediately regrets hitting her. He pours a glass of wine. He says, I should, have not hit, I should not have hit her. That was not kingly. Seems Bobby B struggles with kingly, but it also uh, to a point, and I don't know if you made this on the podcast or if it was just when we're talking, Spencer, it's all starting to bleed together for me. Um, but you have made the point before, like it, King probably didn't beat her that often just because of how Cersei looked shocked in this moment. Mm -hmm. And then the king was like, oh, crap, I, I shouldn't have done it. It's not like this is a Tuesday. I hit my wife. Like, it's like, oh, man, I really messed up this time. Yeah, yeah particularly on the show, I think they're kind of implying this is maybe one of the first times he's ever hit her. I mean, she seems shocked. She pulls herself up in response to it. And his immediate reaction is, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. That wasn't appropriate. Yeah, and I got the sense that 
she probably has this acid tongue with him when it's just the two of them, and he probably doesn't care. He probably laughs and dismisses her, but he's they're they're in front of Ned. Yeah, like now, and he he, I, 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 he wants to resolve this situation, but he is not a hundred percent siding with his wife here. No, I mean he's consistently trying to broker peace between the Lannisters and the Starks. This is his modus operandi every stage of each of his decisions. Even with respect, going way back to when uh, Arya and Joffrey got in a fight, and with respect to the Direwolf, he's trying to do whatever he can to keep these two away from each other's throats and not pick sides. Whether that's successful or not, it's a different decision. As for his relationship with Cersei, we've talked about that they've very much made the two of them more likable and given their relationship a bit of hope. So I think particularly on the show, his relationship is more emotionally abusive rather than any degree physically. Whereas in the books, I don't think he ever very frequently struck her in public, but he, their relationship definitely had an element of physical abuse, or at least indifference to many aspects of her physical well-being. Okay. Uh, the king then sits down the bed and he says, look... Uh, Cat needs to return, quote, return that little shit of an imp to King's Landing. <laughs> She's had her fun. Uh, again, the king knows Cat did this, not Ned. He's not, there's no pretense to this. And Ned wants to know um, what the king's going to do about Jamie Lannister. I'm half a kingdom in debt to his bloody father. So this is yet again, like we, we, we've heard that the king is, the crown is in debt. Uh, we know the Baratheons aren't from money. It's not like when he took the, you know, he took over, he would like had a whole well. I mean, they had money, but they weren't like the Tyrells or the Lannisters. No, and he consider he seems like a tax and spend Republican, right? I mean, he's like, a, or no, sorry, no, no, the exact opposite. No, no, sorry, uh, cut taxes. Both are true in this day and age. Cut taxes and spend, right? Because he wants the people to like him. He's a he's a gregarious king. I'm sure his tax rates are not as high as the Mad Kings were, uh, but he still has these crazy tourneys you know, and big feast and he does all this lavish spending. So he's just racking up a huge amount of debt. This is one of the first times we have direct uh, verification from Robert that this is informing his decision-making. Oh, the Lannisters have him by the coin purse and that's really governing how he's going about resolving these issues. Uh, Then the king, yet again, I mean, really submitting his resume for an arbitrator. I don't know what happened between you and those yellow-haired shits. I don't want to know. I can't rule the kingdoms if the Starks and the Lannisters are at each other's throats. So enough! If if Little Finger wants chaos, uh, Spencer, I think he's picked the right plan because this is working. Yeah, it is unquestionably working, and he is going to emphasize it even more before this episode is done. Uh, Ned says he'll return to Winterfell. The king says no, he wants him to stay. Piss on that. Send a raven. I'm the king. I get what I want. Uh, it's one of the few times I'm actually going to reference a politician. That's a very Trumpian response there from King Bobby B. Uh, King says he never loved... Then, then the king gets serious. He says, I never loved my brothers. Uh, but Ned is the brother that he chose. And I think that is very true for everything we know in the canon. Is that he didn't, love, so. he didn't love Stannis. Should have Stannis. Shout out one true king. <laughs> didn't like Rinley. I think they were just oil and water, which we'll see in a scene later in this episode. Um, mm-hmm. But he does love Ned unquestionably and he very much is depending on him for this i mean they clearly are butting heads a lot but i think from robert's perspective he literally can't rule the kingdom unless he has ned at his side and spencer i'll say this i have a brother i love my brother so that's not quite the same but you're the brother i chose i'm honored sir (laughs) Uh, the king throws the uh the hands pin at ned and says they'll talk when he returns from the hunt and it's like the hunt (laughs) king says yeah killing things clears my head you have to sit on the throne when I'm away. You'll hate it more than I do. You know, in, in terms of timing for this, could 
Robert have picked a worse timing to leave Dodge? I mean, everything's just starting to go to hell. It's pretty much only holding together by his ability to continue to broker some degree of peace between the uh, Lannisters and the Starks. And he's leaving right now? So question for you. If Robert does not go on this hunt, do you think Cersei still has him killed some way? I think it would be harder for her. I think it would be significantly harder for her. And I don't know if she would have had a moment. Because Ned's going to find out. That was my thought. Is is that without Ned finding out about Joffrey and Tommen and Marcella's actual parentage, I think that Cersei would have eventually killed him. But with what we know about Ned's actions and what Ned's discovered and is going to discover this episode, uh, I don't think she would have had time. So I think actually Cersei would have been screwed if Robert didn't go on this hunt. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where uh, Cersei wasn't, you know, some kind of adept political mastermind with how she pulls off her ultimate success in this season. She got really, really lucky with the timing of a lot of events. Yeah. Uh, Ned again brings up Danny, and the king just gets so frustrated. She's going to die. He doesn't want to hear any more of it. Just stop talking about that. Um, and then he, he hits her with the line. <clears throat> he hits Ned with the line, put on the badge. And if you ever take it off again, I swear to the mother, I'll pin the damn thing on Jamie Lannister. Can he pin it on Jamie Lannister? I guess he can do what he wants. He's king. He just established that. But that's kind of weird, right? To have your hand of the king be in the king's guard? I mean, I don't, I, I mean, there's been, it's, it's been a power behind the throne in other ways in the past, but I don't think he literally means that he's going to do this. I think it's just, it, this is, I think, KG Robert, a really effective way to keep Ned in the job. Because I think Ned's ultimate nightmare scenario is the idea of Jamie Lannister being handed the king. Well, yeah, what we know of Robert's rebellion is that when Ned caught Jamie on the throne, he flipped his shit. He was not okay with that. Now, I would like to point out something here that's very interesting, I think very fitting. Uh, and I, I really like the symmetry. So here, Ned is doing all he can to protect Danny. Literally, like, risking the life of his family, risking his position, risking the fact that he's Warden of the North. He's mm-hmm. bucking the king and being disres- openly disrespectful to the king about this position. He's doing everything he can to save Danny's life, and now we are entering Season 8, and Danny is riding north to do everything she can do to save uh, Ned's children. It has a a certain poetic justice to it that Ned's self-sacrifice to protect a person that he deems ultimately an innocent comes back to quite possibly save the world. And she never knows. Danny never knows that Ned did this. But even without that, in parallel, uh, she was able to have a story arc where now she has come and unbeknownst to her is repaying the favor and doing what she can to to save the Starks and Winterfell in the North and the realm. So I, I thought that was really cool. It's notable, too, that up until meeting Jon Snow, if Danny had gotten Ned Stark in her possession or control, do you think she would have shown him any mercy whatsoever? It would be tough. It would be uh, it, it would be um, the timeline for that, right? So how yeah. quickly does she get him, and then how quickly does she dispense justice? If this is like a Lord Tarly situation, yeah, Ned's done. Um, but I do think that if Ned, Ned and Danny ever sat down and talked... Uh, I think that would have gone very similar to how Tyrion and Danny went, where Ned yeah. would have been able to win her over. Because Danny can be nutty. She has her Mad Queen bars we've discussed in her coverage of season seven, and we had sure we will in coverage of season eight. But mm-hmm. when somebody is fundamentally good, she seems to know that. She seems to pick up on it pretty quickly. 
Yeah, I think she recognizes that pretty fast, and it's hard not to see it just, you know, reverberating off Ned when you're around him. Now, you do love yourself some Ned. Anything more on this scene? No, and I think we're cutting from here to Danny and Essa, so appropriate transition. This is a really weird scene. I feel like this was just ham-handed, just jammed in here. There's not much going on. So Danny, she's just sitting there. She looks like she might be high on the milk of the puppy. I don't know what she's doing. She, <laughs> does not, she looks a little glazed over. Uh, and she grabs a dragon egg and she puts it in the fire. Spencer, is she trying to hatch the egg? You know, she's almost acting like she's in a trance the whole scene. I don't know if she knows what she's doing. It's like she's being magically compelled to do this without full understanding or control of it. So, I guess, maybe... Yeah, it was really weird. Um, and then a handmaid comes in uh, after she's put it on the fire. Well, no, before that, Danny picks it up. The handmaid walks in, sees Danny picking up the egg, which at this point you can kind of say it's it's a lot like stone. It just probably just mm-hmm. got really hot. Handmaiden comes over trying to protect Danny, takes it from her hand. Handmaiden's burned. Danny is not. Point of the scene. Ugh. Anything else you want to talk about? I mean, it's, it's to remind the viewers that Danny's mean to fire. It is a scene from the book, so and it has a similar purpose there as well. Um, it, it is just an odd scene, because Danny, as you said, looks very out of it. She even seems confused at the end that the handmaiden is hurt. Um, it, yeah, I, I'm not sure what to make of it other than what it stands for for plot purposes, just to re- remind the audience that Danny has fire resistance. Yeah, I, I thought it was... I mean, it, now, to be fair, I'm a person who watches these episodes like five to ten times. So I'm like, of course everybody should know she's immune to fire. Remember in the first episode when she got in the bath? Like, I, And I understand people don't watch it that way. So you have to put some of these things in, but it, it didn't really interest me. So then we cut to Winterfell. And Bran is again dreaming of the Three-Eyed Raven in the Winterfell courtyard, motioning him toward the crypts. Uh, Bran wakes up. Uh, my main man, Hodor, comes in with the saddle. Uh, we are meant to uh, think that this is probably the saddle that Tyrion designed. And mm-hmm. the saddle works. Woo! Bran is quickly around, too. hooting and hollering, having a good time. Bran is happy for the first time that we've seen him since the fall. It's it's, imp- it's just a testament to the quality of uh, Tyrion's work. He was even talking about that you would need to you know train the boy and the horse together to make it work so they could be able to ride together with um, out like commands and everything else. But quality of his work, and maybe it's a horse that um, Bran already knew in advance because they're just riding around happily without any burden at all. Yeah, a little too happily. Uh, so <laughs> Rob and Theon are looking on, and Theon is urging Rob to ride south. Um, he's, his quote is, you need to make the Lannisters pay for Jory and the others. And Rob is resistant. Uh, Theon then tries to lecture Rob on what his responsibility in the family is, which I think is a bad move, a little step too far. It's your duty to represent your house when your father can't. Um, and then he says, Rob says, it's not your duty because it's not your house. Rob's being a bit of a prick here. cold. True, Rob's being a bit of a prick here, but I think Theon uh, overstepped his bounds. And then they start to, then Rob starts to wonder where Bran is. Uh, Theon says, I don't know, it's not my house, and walks off. So, woo. Test Thanks, exchange. Theon. Uh, Bran has wandered off, and some people come uh, upon him. These are people who are disheveled. Uh, they, they look like they've been out for a while. Uh, and we quickly find out it's wildlings. It's three men, one woman, and they tell him to get off the horse. He says he can't. And they ask him if he's a cripple, and then Bran really makes a mistake here and pronounces, He's not a cripple, I'm Brandon Stark of Winterfell. Should not have done that. Should not have done that. It is funny, though, how the Wildlings only know of the Stark name through Benjen Stark. Did you catch that? 
Yeah, that that's what they immediately associate it with, which, you know, from their perspective is a lot more meaningful than some distant lordling that's south of the wall. Benji the Stark has been a direct thorn in their side for years. And there's a reference to Mance Raider, so again, the show Fair benefiting uh, benefiting from having the source text because everything is just con- uh, consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, Rob comes upon them. He kills two of the men, snatches the one by the hair. The other man puts a knife to Bran's throat. Bran is an OG and begs Rob not to put his sword down. So re- respect to Bran here. He's not begging for his life. He's like, no, no, come kill this fucker guy. <laughs> I really like that. Uh, but of course, Rob puts uh, puts the sword down. And then we see a bolt go through the heart of the guy who is holding Bran. It's Theon. He has shot him with an arrow through the heart. Rob gets fussy. You don't have the right to what? To save your brother's life. It was the only thing to do, so I did it. Shout out to Theon here. Not many times is he going to be right in a conversation, but he was right this time. What, what do we think of uh, Rob's reaction here? Because I'm fully with Theon in this scene. Is this just anger born of worry? Because this is an oddly, I almost say irrational response from Rob to this moment. Theon just saved Bran's life indisputably right now. I think it's a combination of two things. One, it's Rob knows that if he'd have missed his heart and just hit his shoulder, that the guy would have had enough time to cut Bran's throat. So I think he was, again, scared. But I also think he was a little pissed that he wasn't able to resolve the situation on his own. I mean, he's a proud guy. There's some guilt at play here. I think so. They decide to keep the woman alive for now. Um, And that's really it. Anything else here? Well, just a couple little bits of trivia that they referenced, but they didn't say explicitly. Um, It's made very clear in the books that two of these wildlings are actually Night's Watch deserters. Uh, and that is directly shown in their costuming, and that they're both still wearing their Night's Watch uh, uniforms. They're still wearing the, uh, the kind of roughly, almost uh, feathery black cloaks. Um, now that's so not I the think... case in the show, right? No, no, that, that that is in the show. If you look, if you look back and look at their costumes, there oh, okay. there are distinctly two sets of costumes. The uh, nice. one with the axe that, yeah, the one with the axe that charges Rob and promptly gets his throat cut. He's wearing the distinctly classic like wildling seal. Uh, leather kind of thing, as is Osha. Whereas the other two are wearing exactly uh, John's I'm going north of the wall attire. Hmm. So it, Interesting. It, it, is, it is subtle. They don't reference it. They make a big, big, big deal of it. It's made more clear in the books. But I think it's just a nice little addition to show that the Wildlings are a very diverse collection of people when you call them that. They even hint to it and just the, like the leader of them clearly has more knowledge about the South than any other Wildlings we meet other than their leadership. That he says that we're going south, not just as far south as you can go. We're going south to Dorn. We never meet a wildling that ever has heard or discussed Dorn before. That is outside of their way of knowledge to even know that exists. So, yeah, it is a sort of catch-all term, wildling. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting little addition, which I appreciate that they kept that in. Cool. Anything else on this scene? No, no. This is our introduction to Osha, who is a great character played by a wonderful actress, and so I'm happy to have her part of the show. Completely agree. So we cut to the Eyrie. Uh, and Tyrion just about falls out of the sky cell. And oh my God, did I have to turn the television off? Oh God. If you're scared wanted... of heights, this whole thing with the, the sky cells is just not cool. So as we've discussed before in the show, you suffer from pronounced, uh, I think it's acrophobia is the term for fear of heights, right? I, I, I was confused. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have that. What you just said, I don't have that, but I am scared of heights. <laughs> sure. Whatever. Uh, I feel like that they, my dad talked about this too, because he has a distinct fear of heights. In that scene, they just tapped into it purely as he's just rolling towards the edge, arm off it with just nothing but abyss below him. Ooh, yeah, not good. Uh, question for Tyrion, why not sleep perpendicular to the slant? 
Uh, you know, maybe it's just not as comfortable. You know, maybe they've done something to the floor to make it not as comfortable. It's a, it's a built-in recliner. What are you talking about? I don't know. He didn't. You know, maybe there. I've not actually even ever slept on an incline. Maybe if you just like sleep perpendicular, you eventually just start rolling to one side or the other. Oh God! Don't tell me that. Okay, so Tyrion then calls out for Mord. Uh, Mord comes in. <laughs> this this guy who's playing Mord. I mean, I clearly I think it's supposed to be somebody who's had like a lobotomy, maybe. Um, some injury got of some big, sort or something. Yeah, a big scar near his top of his, or front of his skull. Uh, and Tyrion is trying to reason with Mord, and he asks if he'd like to be rich. Uh, and Mord looks around like, yeah, sure, where's your money? And he tries to explain, I don't have the money. And then he just hits Tyrion and storms off. I adore the interactions between these two characters of where, you know, Tyrion's a relatively smart person. So having to try to deal with someone who is incapable of abstract thought and is literally too liberal to bri- uh, too literal to bribe is just fun. Yeah. All right. Uh, then we cut to King's Landing. And Sirio Pharrell closes the door for the start of Arya's dancing lesson. Arya doesn't look into it all. And Sirio throws Arya the training sword and she says she doesn't want to practice today. Hey, buddy. Yeah, dog has to make an appearance. I think it's probably going to be his only bark right now. Bobby, you okay? Uh, yeah, okay. Okay, good Good change of pace from the last episode. I will tell you, we've had a little bit of feedback from uh, our listeners. Um, they are a little concerned about your dog dad status. A couple times in the last episode, you did yell, shut the fuck up at the dog. So <laughs> I was hoping you would cut those. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was in, and people picked up okay. on it and had some, had some questions. Uh, okay. I, t- I assured them you're a good dog dad. Uh, you know, I hate the little bastard, but you know, he's, he's occasionally cute and appeals to Bridget. So that, that works well enough for me. Just so you know, I'm not cutting that either. Okay. So back to, <laughs> uh, back to Arya. She says, uh, they killed Jory, her father's hurt, and she doesn't care about the stupid swords. You are troubled. Good. Trouble is the perfect time to train. When you are dancing in the meadow with your dolls and kittens, this is not when fighting happens. This is really good advice here from Sirio. Uh, he's saying, look, you know, sometimes you're going to have to get in a fight when bad things are happening around you and you're going to have to be able to fight through it. So this is a good lesson he's, he's doing, but Arya explains that she doesn't like dolls. That checks out. You're not here. You're with your trouble. If you are with your trouble when fighting happens, fair point. Uh, could get mm-hmm. her killed. She tries to fight back. Not well. More trouble for you. They spar a bit. He takes her sword. Clearly she isn't into it, but Sirio, Sirio again has a point. Um, do pray to the gods. Out in the new. Probably learned that from her mother. <laughs> There's only one God. His name is Death. There's only thing we say only one thing we say to Death. Not today. Sirio is a boss and they start fighting again. I love this scene. I love every scene with Sirio Farrell. Yeah, this this actor is a masterstroke. He looks absolutely nothing like the character described in the book, and I don't care. He just embodies him perfectly. I mean, this line is even not in the book. They just made up this line. But can you imagine a line, this line not being associated with Ciro Pharrell now? It is just perfect. Yeah, and I love his accent, which I'm, I'm trying to do, but it's pretty good. There's only one God, and his name is Diff. The only one thing you say to death, not today. And also the actor's really cool. We've seen him at some uh, some cons, and he's just okay. game. He's, he's one of these he's one of these guys that just gets it. He understands like don't go in there and make fun of the fans for being obsessive about the show or the books. Like play the character, play the role, give the people what they want, uh, as my man Jalen Rose would say. Uh, and he does that perfectly. 
And, and in terms of just how he interacts with Arya, I love their interactions with each other. He has such a fluid charm, and she responds so well to him. She looks like she's having so much fun doing this, and she probably really is. So this character, their interactions, this actor, they're all treasures, and I love them so much in the show. Okay. Anything else on this scene? No, no. Short scene, but awesome, and gives us one of the best lines of the entire series. Agreed. Two S.O.'s. Danny is eating a horse heart in a tent in Vice Dothrak with people around chanting and her husband, Caldrogo, looking on uh, intently. Um, Spencer, do you have any book nerd background on the eating of the horse heart? I didn't prep you for uh, this. If you don't, we can move on. No, no, it, it, it does indeed happen in the books in terms of she actually watches them remove the heart for her to engage in. Um, I have some just practical concerns, just Really oh, bookend too. show here. Uh, yeah, me too. From, I briefly Googled this, and uh, like the average horse heart, seven to nine pounds. And if you start getting to like a war horse or a thoroughbred, you can start approaching like 12 to 20. So that's a lot of protein, and uh, it's not exactly the, the most edible kind. It's mostly, you know, vein and muscle and various other inedible things that this roughly 100, 110 pound woman is now trying to consume in its entirety. Yeah, that's a massive food challenge. I'm somebody who's really interested in food challenges. I can tell you that most of them settle between about four and five pounds. And that's, if you're not a professional, like, uh, food challenge guy uh, or woman, you, you, you cap out at about that. Because unless you stretch your stomach, that's about all that you can handle in one sitting. Unless you try to spread it over, like, a four, five, six-hour period, you actually digest a little bit and you can keep going. Um, so she would have, and I know in the book she does some training for this, but you would have to train a lot. Uh, to get, say, eight pounds down. Um, I don't know if you ever watched the show Man vs. Food. Mm-hmm. I have. This is, yeah, this is a show by a guy who's kind of a prick, but he went around um, doing these food challenges. Uh, and he never... I, I watched every episode. I don't think he got anything more than five pounds down. And this is a guy who was doing it for a living at the time. So <laughs> it, you you eclipse that five-pound mark, it's hard. So I, logistically, I don't know about this. And two other things. Uh, one, for most of these food challenges, they're actually eating something that resembles food. Uh, the horse heart has a lot of parts to it that are not, by most official definitions, edible, or at least enjoyable to consume. Uh, so that's one issue. Point number two, we actually have a degree of personal experience in uh, eating, trying to eat massive amounts of food. Uh, do you remember back at uh, Bandito's back in Chapel Hill? Uh, yeah. A particular food... A particular food challenge, uh, a burrito, its name escapes me. What was the name of that thing again? El Gigante. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, which officially is a six-pound monstrosity that if you successfully consume one sitting, sitting, you get a sombrero and your picture on the wall. Uh, we have some doubts whether it actually is six pounds, but several of us all sat down to try and eat this. All of us being basically about half again as big as Danny. And we were not happy trying to get through this six pounds of burrito meat. Did you get through it? I didn't. No. God, no. I I stopped about halfway through. Most of us just threw up in the process. Uh, So having personal experience eating less than Danny's being expected to right here, I I, I have firm doubts about her ability to do this other than just out of sheer raw determination. I also think it's a fun little bit of trivia that Amelia Clark essentially actually had to do this in that they made a realistic prop out of basically glycerin, uh, hard pasta, and red dye. 
that she Ooh. had to actually eat in multiple takes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so I did the El Gigante Challenge. I didn't do it with you guys. I did it with uh, another group of friends I have, and I got through it. Now, I will tell you, it took me about an hour. I did make it through, but it took me like an hour and a half. Like, the people there were getting very bored with me, but I was like, I'm going to stay here as long as I have to to get this thing down. I did get it down. There's no way it was six pounds, or at least not the one I ate. Um, But, yeah, these food challenges are really tough. So it's it's just uh, kind of hard to believe that she could get through this. But hey, whatever. It's kind of a cool cool idea. You eat the horse heart. They're the horse lords. I get it. Now, do you believe that if you had a, a series of Doge Kaleen chanting around you and encouraging the ultimate success of your heir, this would have made the food challenge easier for you? Uh, no. I had a group of um, like early 20s guys uh, basically challenging my manhood as I tried to do it. So, you know, I you think know she, I motivation think- either way. I think she planned this out better, but I won't second guess you there. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so Vice, uh, Viserys, he's watching this with Jorah. He seems confused. He says, <laughs> this is a good line. Hope that wasn't my horse. Uh, he seems <laughs> yeah, to have no, no face. She'll keep it down. Uh, seems to be rooting against her, but she is keeping it down. And the cow is loving it. Oh, man. Cow Drogo is really enjoying this. Uh, Viserys, uh, again, seems confused. He says he's never seen people... Uh, seen people love Danny. Wait, no, no, basically what my, my, my quote is, he's never seen people love Danny, right? He mm-hmm. has viewed Danny as his lesser, as his object. And the fact that she has independent love from this group of very powerful people, I think is concerning for him. I think, um, I think he's even confused by just the, the nature of this adoration. As we see from him in a later scene, I don't think he's ever experienced this or seen it done. It actually confuses him at first to realize they love her. As if it's just almost like a foreign concept, not only that they love her, but just that this can be a motivation and rallying cry behind people. He does make the comment that Danny's forthcoming son won't be a real Targaryen. Spencer, what does he mean there? Is he saying that unless he impregnates Danny, no child she has will be a true Targaryen? This is something the Targaryens have gone back and forth on a lot, because we know for a fact the Targaryens married into several other noble houses at various times, including, famously, the House Martell and the Dornish, as recently as Rhaegar Targaryen and his children. So this whole keeping the bloodline pure is classic Targaryen. I mean, Aegon married his two sister wives, and regularly they practice that going, going throughout the generations. And growing up, Viserys often told Danny that she was going to be his queen, and she grew up believing that she was going to someday marry Viserys. Um, so it is definitely part of the Targaryen family to believe they have to keep the bloodline pure and marry within their family. But it's not been something that they've necessarily consistently kept to. Another famous example is uh, Egg, who married outside of his family and encouraged his children to do the same. Yep. Uh, so Danny finishes. She almost hurls at the end, but she's able to to uh, do a second round there. <laughs> <laughs> and get the uh, the bit that came up down, and the cow picks her up, walks her around. They scream the stallion that mounts the world, which uh, is someone, uh, which uh, Jor explains, that will join all the cows together and take over the world. Spoiler alert, this is not Danny's son, it's her. She is the stallion that mounts the world. She says her son will be named Rego. They all start chanting, Rego, Rego, Rego. The series is still confused. They love her, which is actually a pretty sad line. Yeah, it was. Uh, and then uh, Viserys leaves the tent as Jorah is talking. And then Jorah gives a look at Danny, which I, I, you can call it lust if you want, but it's at least uh, an appreciative look. It, it, 
we can debate this. Viserys challenges this shortly thereafter. Uh, how do you feel about the name, Rago? I mean, I, I felt like it was a good, um, it was Danny even in just the naming of her child combining her, her, her family heritage and her adopted heritage together in terms of mixing Rhaegar and Drogo into one. Came me Rago! Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. I'm, I'm down. Uh, I thought it was great. Uh, you know, it's, it's her keeping some of her own identity, um, but fusing it with the Dothraki. So I, I thought it was a good, good name choice. Uh, luckily for her, uh, Jorah rightfully predicts where Viserys has exited, exited stage left to go. Yeah, Viserys apparently goes straight to Danny's tent. He's taking the eggs and Jorah catches him. Jorah, the first thing he does is warn him about carrying a sword in Vice Dothrak. I don't know how many times you have to tell this idiot something. Don't wear a sword. Um, it's a good warning considering what happens in the rest of the episode. Viserys claims oh, yeah. he could sell one egg and get a ship two eggs and get an army. Spencer, does this check out? I don't know. I mean, they're often talked about that these dragon eggs are literally priceless and that it was an incredibly kingly gift for uh, Lyra Mopathis to give these to Danny. But we never see them brokered. I, there's no real price point described. Viserys clearly believes this, um, but his actual ability to do it? I got my doubts. And I could totally see him overvaluing the eggs, too. Yeah. You know, just like overvaluing everything. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. And then you get a really sad line here from Viserys. You're not going to catch Lee being very um, sympathetic to Viserys, but I will with this line. I wrote it down. <laughs> I'm the last hope of a dynasty, Mama. The greatest dynasty the world has ever seen on my shoulders since I was five years old. And no one has ever given me what they gave to her in that tent. Never. Not a piece of it. Whew. True. It's... It is a credit to the writing and the acting. Harry Lloyd does a wonderful job in terms of playing Viserys and somehow making him vaguely sympathetic in, in, in some twisted way. But particularly the villains in these early part of the seasons, with the with a few notable exceptions, are given this kind of completeness of character. And so I like that we get these scenes with Viserys of where we start at the edge of an understanding of why this guy got to be the twisted wretch that he is today. Well, and, and it's yeah. one of the few times that he actually talks about the pressure. He feels oh, like yeah. the the dynastic pressure of the history of his family to not let it die. Uh, yeah. And I think Danny feels that uh, in later seasons as well. Yeah, I mean, I, if, you, if you don't mind me, I, I think the, the whole quote the whole quote has some value because it's just a great line of where I'm the last hope of a dynasty, Mormon. The greatest dynasty this world has ever seen on my shoulders since I was five years old, and no one has given me what they gave her in that tent. Never. Not a piece of it. How can I carry what I need to carry without it? Hmm? Who can rule without wealth or fear or love? It's a wonderful line just to show how desperate and lost this character has been. Basically since the age of five. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, and the answer to your question, Viserys, is you can't. Uh, <laughs> so then Viserys good, tells... Good discussion. Your, yeah. Uh, he, Viserys then pulls uh, his ace in the, uh, up his sleeve and he says, you know, I know you have the hots for Danny. He says he doesn't care in so long as Jorah lets him go. Jorah says he can go, but he has to leave the eggs. Uh, next piece of dialogue. Let's do a little role play in here, Spencer. Do you want to be Viserys or do you want to be Jorah? I will be Viserys because I think you can do a better Jorah than I can. Okay. You swore an oath to me. Does loyalty mean nothing to you? means everything to me and yet here you stand and yet here i stand 
Oh my god! Oh. <gasps> and, and you know the little sound uh, with uh, Click Game Ball that do 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 do? Yeah. Like the people do online? Like I wanted to do that when I saw this. Like to just drop in the Mormont House words in this conversation is incredible. Yeah, I, I want the boom that's holding the mic over their heads to just drop right now because this is there's there's a wonderful uh, post of where someone's doing the thoughts in Jorah's head as you know, as he gets set up for this line because this is just like one of the moments he's probably dreamed about since he's a kid to be able to throw down the Mormon house words to win a conversation and it's perfect. Here I stand. Viserys looks at him, drops the eggs, and leaves. Anything else on uh, the scene? No. And when he left here. Did you think he was gone? Do you think we were going to see him again this episode? Because I was kind of inclined to think maybe he'd show up later in the season, but I wasn't predicting that he was going to be back as quick as he was. Oh, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I thought he was probably going to leave the city, um, but what he ends up doing does kind of make sense. Uh, yeah. Anyway, he just goes off and gets drunk. Uh, so uh, We can in cut character. to the Eerie. Yeah, we can cut to the Eerie. And Tyrion is calling for Mord again. It's a little buddy cop he's got going. Uh, Mord comes in and Tyrion is struggle to explain, struggling to explain to Mord that he doesn't have the gold. He has, or he has the gold, but he doesn't have it on him. Uh, he Sometimes says, wealth can be an abstract concept. <laughs> Possession can be an abstract Possession. concept. That's so funny. Like, Tyrion, I know you were in the sky cell. You almost fell over, but is that the argument you want to lead with? Anyway, he finally gets there. You can see yeah. there's a little sparkle in Tyrion's eye. And he goes, have you ever heard the phrase, rich as a Lannister? Again, mm -hmm. Tyrion throwing his name around. I've talked about this in other episodes of our season one coverage, and it hits home. And he says, of course you have. You are a smart man. You've also heard the phrase, a Lannister always pays his debts. Mord has heard this. And now this oh, yeah. is, Mord's like, okay, all right. And Mord starts listening. Tyrion says, look, I'll give you gold. You need to deliver a message to Lady Arryn. And then Tyrion is brought before Lysa. Well, um, Mord asks him what message, to which Tyrion responds that he wishes to confess his crimes. Tyrion then gets before Lysa and he confirms he wishes to commit his crimes. She smugly says, the sky seals always break them to Cat. Uh, Cat at this point, she's just surrounded by people she doesn't like. I don't think she's... <laughs> everybody's fucked up. Like, she's she's in a bad situation. Tyrion, Tyrion then starts to confess to ridiculous things he did when he was a kid. Spencer, you work blue, I don't. What does Tyrion confess to? You're not going to get me to say this on tape because you're going to use it against me, but uh, he, uh, well, I'm not going to quote him, but he confesses to a variety of things. He confesses to uh, filling his um, uncle's boots with shit. He confesses to stealing a servant girl's robes and how he still remembers the sight of her tits bouncing. Uh, Working he blue. Confess uh, tits? Tits yeah. is blue right. now at this point? That's right. Come on. That's right. Well, yeah, it's one of the dirty words you can't say on, t on television. Um, it uh, he confesses to a, uh, I'll use, be a little bit euphemistic about this one. A particular incident involving a pot of turtle stew and some elaborately described metaphors for a certain process of the human body, and uh, he <laughs> continues on from there to one that I wish he'd had an opportunity to finish of where finish of where he once brought a jackass and a honeycomb into a brothel. But uh, unfortunately, though he's starting to win the crowd at this point, he has fully lost Lysa Aaron, who interrupts, to the disappointment of, little, of, of Sweet Robin, too. Yeah, Robin asking the real questions for the fandom. What happened next? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know, too, Robin. But it, it is a hilarious little speech that he goes on here. 
Which, you know, at first they actually think, okay, well, he's starting young, but they were eventually going to get the one he wants to go to. And within about a minute, it's like, oh, okay, this is where this is going now. Yeah, and it's funny because they, they do a little cutaway to, to Braun, and Braun is watching and clearly getting a kick out of this. Oh, yeah. Um, Tyrion again says he did not kill John Aaron or try to kill Brandon Stark. Lysa orders Tyrion back to the cell. He says, is this what justice looks like in the Vale? He asks for a trial. Lysa says her son will judge the trial. Uh, what? Uh, <laughs> God help you. <laughs> For real? So then Tyrion says, well, that's not going to work. So he demands a trial by combat. Many people step up to be Lysa Aaron's champion. But she seems to want this guy named Sir Verdus to be her champion. Spencer, do you have any background on Sir Verdus? Uh, not much. I mean, he's the commander of her guard, so it is a natural position that he would step into. We saw that he was the one that led the group that rode out to intercept Catelyn, who served as the initial introductions. Um so, I mean, just the fact that she has a very close relationship with him, he's, she's one, he's one of the knights that is consistently at her side, makes sense that she'd want him for this purpose. Uh, in terms of his regarded skill as a warrior, there's nothing particularly legendary about him or anything else. He's just a reliable and stalwart knight, very traditional and um, representing those knightly values of the area. Yeah. Which, as we see, are rapidly turned against him by a very cunning mercenary in yeah. short order. Yeah, he says he'd be your champion, but he doesn't want to butcher a dwarf. Oh, my God. Um, Tyrion calls for a champion. People giggle. Bronn accepts. I'll stand for the dwarf. To the shock of everyone. I mean, uh, you, I fully believe that Tyrion was basically lost. Once his little Jamie plan fell through, had effectively lost all hope. And that he was truly grasping at straws. I don't think he in any way anticipated anyone was going to stand for him there. I do. I think he was playing Braun the whole time because if you could think back, Braun liked Tyrion's dirty jokes. One of the first times they bond is when he says after the fight with the Hill Tribesmen, the Vale Hill Tribesmen, that he would uh, he'd have sex with Cat if she would after the fight. Um, and so I think when he goes into this whole thing, these, these dirty jokes, I think it was yet again, he said, I know this guy likes this part of my personality. He digs these jokes. This is, I mean, it's, it's a, grasping at straws is the right way to put it, but I do think it's a little more calculated than just, I don't know, I'll just throw it out there. I think he did have in the back of his mind, like, okay, if anyone's going to do this, it's probably going to be this guy. I think it's at the back of his mind. I just don't think he had necessarily much hope for it. I think he was actually hoping the Jamie scenario might play out. I also love Sir Vardis's reaction of when he first says, you know, it wouldn't be honorable to fight the dwarf, but I'll fight his champion. And then uh, Tyrion proposes Jamie. He cut The camera cuts immediately to Vardis, who is just shitting himself upon that idea. Yeah, it's true. He did not like it. Well, of course, Lysa stops that, which I don't know that she's really, by the king's laws, allowed to do, but she does. And so now we get uh, Sir Vardis versus Bronn. Yeah, and it's going to be one hell of a fight after a... Actually, it's going to be a few scenes before we get there, isn't it? I'm looking at my notes. I think we got about three or four scenes before they get back to it. Yeah, yeah, we do. So we cut to this somewhere, I think, in maybe the Stormlands, where King Molly B is hunting. I'm suspecting this is probably in the uh, King's Wood, in, in the Crown Lands, north of King's Landing. Yeah, could be. Stormlands would be a bit of a trip to get there. Yeah, it could be, but he was going to be gone a while, so who knows? I mean, he could have used that to, to go back home. Um... But anyway, he's hunting with Renly, Sir, Bar- Sir Barristan, and his squire, Lancel Lannister. And Lancel is pumping the king full of wine. I've never seen somebody pump somebody so full of wine since you last visited my house and my wife. Had to drink <laughs> all the blackberry meat and all the land. <laughs> yeah, you haven't seen this since every time I'm in your home. <laughs> the king is talking about how great the good old days were. He gives Renly shit for going to balls and masquerade. I mean, the king's just kind of, he's, he's just talking. He, he's drunk. He's having a good time. He's just saying stuff. And the king asks if Renly has ever fucked a Riverlands girl. Renly says, yes, I think. Uh, nope, don't think he did. And the more he 
Povich lie detector test says that was a lie from Rinley. And Robert explains what making the eight is. Spencer, what's making the eight? Uh, uh, making the eight, I like. I love that they made it the eight. Uh, where it, when we describe the seven kingdoms, it's referring to the seven kingdoms that existed at the time the Targaryens showed up, which notably doesn't include the Riverlands because they were controlled by the Iron Islands and House Hor, that, or however you pronounce that, that uh, ruled both the Iron Isles and the Riverlands at that period. So making the eight is referring to the idea of betting one woman in each of the traditional old Seven Kingdoms as well as the Riverlands. And according to Robert, was one of the things that used to mark a person as a man back in the day. Yeah, and he, <laughs> Robert asked Barristan if he's ever made the eight, which he says, I don't think so, Your Grace. Then Rinley has a fit. He wants to know what the good old days actually were. Uh, once where half of Westeros fought the other half and millions died, or before that, when the Mad King slaughtered women and babies because the voices in his head told him they deserved it. Or way before that, when dragons burned whole cities to the ground. Easy, boy. You might be my brother, but you're speaking to the king. I suppose it was all rather heroic. If you were drunk enough and some poor Ripperland's whore to shove your prick inside and make the eight. Rinley really standing up to Robert here. Oh, yeah. In a way that when I first watched this really shocked me. Uh, I mm-hmm. did not know that he, he was able to speak to Robert this way without some level of a consequence. It's notable how different of generations the two of them are. I mean, Robert, I don't remember the exact numbers right now, but Robert's like, you know, nearly two decades older than Rinley. Um, Rinley never got to experience the nostalgia that Robert lives in, and he has very little tolerance of it. And so, yeah, this was a, an interesting scene of where I truly also did not believe that Rinley had it in to so directly confront Robert about the rose-tinted glasses that he sees the world in the past in. Um, now, a question for so, you. Do you think now you would not have gotten such an emotional response? But do you think that level of disrespect would ever be leveled uh, to Robert by Stannis? No, I, I really don't, don't. I don't either. I, I think Stannis, as much as he resents Robert in a variety of ways, has too much respect for him as the older brother to ever say that kind of statement to him, and too much respect for him as the position of king. Oh, yeah. So I disagree with the older brother thing. I think that if Robert had never become king, but he ended up kind of being the same way, right? Just being kind of a drunken lord. I think Stannis would have undermined him constantly. But he's not going to do that to the king, especially since Stannis made a very personal decision to honor Robert's claim, which it was tough for him to do. Yeah, I I fully believe Stannis would be willing to say some of these things to Robert in private, but here in front of other people, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think he would in any case. So, um, go ahead. Do, do, do we believe, by the way, that this is, we don't think this is the entire hunting party, right? Do we think this is just like a little group of them that have set out off their, on their own from camp rather than literally everyone that Robert brought hunting with him? Yeah, so this is a good example of the season one budget. Uh, I think that, <laughs> I think if you'd have had this scene in season four or later, you would have seen a, a legit hunting party and probably tents where they were set up and the whole thing. But I don't think they had the uh, they had much of a budget. They were probably trying to find ways to cut. And this is an easy way to do it. You just have four folks tromping through the woods. You knock out the dialogue. You're done. Yeah, we 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 know what it is. I'm just I can you know mentally assign it to the idea that they've previously set up camp. Various hunting parties have got off in different directions. This is just the one that Roberts picked to go with him. So fine. But as you say, the real reason is budget. Yeah, Renly storms off, and Lancel again gives the king more wine, which the king chugs. I mean, he takes oh, some, yeah. some Thoros of Mir level chugs of this thing. Uh, and Barristan seems to notice that Lancel is a little too quick on the draw with the wine. He doesn't do anything, but he shoots Lancel a look, like, what, what are you doing? 
this, this scene's built on a variety of Barristan reactions. I love the little smile he does when Robert actually references the eight, then reclaims his honor and he says, nope, nope, never did it, your grace. But as you said, here at the end, he looks, he's looking very intently at this, almost as if he's concerned to see what's going, what uh, Lancelot and Robert are doing here. Well, I mean, he's out hunting fucking wild animals who are violent, and he's getting really hammered, uh, which I'm sure he's done before. Um, but, he, you know, the fact that Lancel is pushing it on him as opposed to what, what should be happening, which is where the squire is trying to push water or at least not wine on the king, right? And he's doing the opposite. He's, he's trying to get him loaded. Are we, are we to believe that Lancel has just, like, uh, several of these bottles just hidden on his person? Because it seems like Robert downs pretty much that entire bottle in, like, one chug here. Well, we have seen um, Robert with Lancel before. Uh, when he was um, talking with, I believe, Jamie Lannister and Barristan, when he's sitting mm-hmm. at that table he likes to day drink at, mm-hmm. uh, and he runs out of wine and he charges Lancel to go get more wine. So Lancel does have wine duty, right? So if he had some overproof wine, which we know that later that he had, uh, mm-hmm. it would be very easy for him to slip it in because I'm sure Robert just went, go back to the tent, get me more wine. Oh, yeah. And in terms of what Lancel's doing here, we know from later on that he is, I'm trying to remember precisely, is it just really, really getting Robert as drunk as possible, or has he actually laced the wine with something? It's overproofed wine. Okay. So he's just, he's inevitably trying to get Robert as drunk as possible. So this is an... So I'm going to just kind of cut in, cut in here. Sorry, Spencer. Yeah. If you're a fan of whiskey on the weekends, which it should be, it's a fun podcast. We do it here on the Mangum Talks podcast channel. The What Lancel is doing here to King Robert is the equivalent of what BJ did to all of us God. with that god-awful <laughs> overproof French whiskey. Like, that's uh. exactly what happened. So if you listen to that podcast, uh, I think it was the one from December 30th, uh, and we sound at the end like, you know, we've had a few. It's because BJ Lancel lannister us. Yeah, if anyone, you know, tries to pour, uh, put cognac-infused uh, cognac whiskey upon you, just look what happens to Robert here and know that something similar is going to happen to you. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I cut you off there. What, what point were you going to make? Uh, just, uh, this is Cersei's plan to kill Robert by. What do we think of this plan? It seems to be involving a massive amount of luck to make it play out as it could. I agree. I mean, uh, this is not a foolproof plan. It works for her, but it's uh, it's not great. I mean, you're relying on, A, he gets drunk enough that he can't spear the thing. B, that he even finds something to spear and that it happens in relatively short order. Well, he's going to find something to spear. Because I think that the king's hunting party is probably like those, like, ridiculous African hunts that happen with, like, super rich people. Where they just basically corral an animal in a a small area and they kind of flank around so the animal can't get away. And then it takes a charge of Robert. Robert kills it. Everybody's happy. That's how I view that kind of happening. So he was always going to get shot at a boar or whatever he's hunting. But the necessarily odds of him getting hurt in the process, much less killed, this is a, not a, in any way a secure and certain plan to play out the way Cersei may want it to. No, and it's so bad that I'm not even quite sure I would level that she murdered the king. I would just say, well, <laughs> maybe this is like a Westerosi manslaughter charge. Yeah, this would be a, like, you know, well, she has the intent, so it wouldn't be involuntary manslaughter, but you might struggle for murder associated with this. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? No, I think we finished this one up, and uh, we cut to a very interesting scene with uh, Ned holding court. 
Yeah, Ned is sitting on the throne, as the king told him he'd have to do while the king's off hunting. And he's hearing the complaints of the people. Uh, it's not the first, not the last time we see this type of setup from a monarch or monarch's proxy. Uh, you see a lot of this in Marine with Danny in season six. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ned's sitting there and he's, he's listening to the people. And some folks from the Riverlands are there talking about how their fields and granaries have been burned. Ned's ask, Ned asks if the people who burned them were carrying a sigil. They say no, but the man at the head of the army was a foot taller than anyone they'd ever seen. They also show uh, what the army left behind, a dead sack of fish. Now, this is, uh, it's interesting for the showrunners to do a Godfather reference here. <laughs> Luca Brasi like, sleeps with the fishes. Uh, we're going yeah, I like that they did it. Yeah, Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. Uh, and Littlefinger's being such a creep in this scene. He keeps suggesting to Ned that the mountain led this charge. Reiterating to him that the dead fish is a reference to his wife's house, the Tullys, which... What do you how, obvious is, how obvious is Littlefinger being here, really? It's it's almost like, like bad writing or bad acting, because I don't... Th- I mean, Ned can be kind of dunce, but this, I think he would have, like, dismissed yeah. him. There's several months when, you know, Littlefinger says this, like, oh, your house, your, your wife's house is associated with this, isn't it? Or isn't the mountain uh, Tywin's bannerman? It's like, Ned looks at him and says, I know, I'm not five. I don't know if it's poor writing on the show or if it's just Littlefinger being really, really talking down to Ned here. Uh, and then, so Spencer, can we talk about for a second just how awful the Mountains men are? Good God. So here's what they do. They This is the, the story recounted by the, the folks from the Riverlands who survived this onslaught. They raped the women multiple times, slaughtered them, and then lit the kids on fire and didn't steal anything, just did it to do it. Anyone, and by the way, Spencer, you're not on social media. You, you're a paper-based man. You're, you're an analog man. Um, mm-hmm. But on Twitter, there's a whole fandom with a lot of the podcasts that we like, that we listen to, um, with the folks who run those. And they get into these conversations. Like like a guy like uh, Brendan Blackfish, right, who's a, a Reddit user who's written some really good um, oh, he's great. stuff on the, on the series. Or the History of Westeros guys, like Aziz. They get in these conversations. And one of the main things, like not main, but it's a recurring ar- ar- argument that happens on social media among the fandom is if Tywin would have been a, a good king. And I'm going to tell you, after listening to what the Mountains men did here, and Tywin tacitly supports it, I'm going to say it's a hard no from me. It's one of the things of where we know that he is a successful ruler. We know what he's brought, what he's accomplished in Castle Rock, and what he's accomplished um, among his own people. We know what he accomplished when he was hand of the king for more than a decade. We know what he's capable of. Would he in any way be a good man? He certainly isn't. He has a pragmatic sense of justice. He has a willingness to bring about order, but the willingness that he has to continually kick the dog to do the evil thing that he views as pragmatically necessary, it can get legitimately appalling. And he's just not only tolerance of the mountain, but we see in a later scene, he directly orders the mountain to go set the Riverlands on fire. I mean, we may believe him that when he originally sent the mountain to go deal with the Targaryen children and deal with uh, Rhaegar's wife, that maybe he didn't know what a mad dog he was at the time, but he's had a solid 20 years since then. There's nothing hidden anymore. He's fully aware of the nature of this just utterly sadistic, evil man that's in his service and what he is abetting by allowing him to be there. So I might, I might say that Tywin could be a good, a um, effective ruler. He could, he could improve ultimately the quality of Westeros. But as a moral person, as a good ruler, he is utterly bankrupt. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, and so I'm going to debut a new segment here. Are you ready for it, Spencer? Oh, God. New segment you never called, tell me these things. New segment called Alternative History with Lee. This segment is sponsored by the Cash App. We're switching to the Cash App. Okay, we go to what would have happened if Robert did not die on the hunt. I submit this to you, Spencer, for your consideration. I think if Robert Please. had come back from the hunt and he had not died, like we talked about, Cer- uh, um, Cersei would not have had a chance to actually kill him uh, before Ned told Robert about the true parentage of Joffrey, Marcella, and Tommen. I think this would have prompted the king to probably execute Cersei. Um, Jamie Lannister has already fled the area, so he's he's wouldn't be immediately at the king's reach. But Ned has called upon Tywin to come and answer for the crimes of his bannermen. I think instead of the Starks and the Lannisters at each other's throats, I think you would have had Tywin v. Robert. I think there would have been a, a war, especially when Tywin figured out uh, that Robert has murdered uh, Cersei. Uh, I think you would that the, the battle you would have seen then would have been to crown the Baratheons and their bannermen against the Lannisters. What do you it's think? Very poss- it's very possible. It relies on a t- couple things that, that I'm not as certain about. Uh, one of the biggest ones is I don't believe that Ned would have told Robert first, because we know that he didn't. Uh, I think he still would have gone to Cersei and her children and given them an opportunity to get away. So I don't know if Cersei would have taken him up on that or tried to pull something right in that moment like she does. Um, But I think if she she didn't have the same circumstances of Robert being on his deathbed or whatever else, I think she practically would have tried to ride away and might have gotten away. In which case it would be Robert trying to essentially invade the... uh, the uh, Westerlands to get her and get the children and seek revenge for that. Uh, another thing to play out is that I fully believe that Ned would have eventually got it, but at least shown in this episode, it takes him doing what he does in this scene in terms of sending everybody out after the mountain to then go to his daughters and say, I got to get you back to Winterfell to protect you, to um, play out things as they do in terms of him realizing from what Sansa flippantly says that, huh, let me investigate this book again. Would that scenario have played out necessarily the same or as quickly? I don't know. I mean, are, for Robert to live here, are we presuming he doesn't even go on the hunt, or are we presuming that he just doesn't die on the hunt? Uh, well, that he doesn't go, but of course if he doesn't... Or he said he doesn't, that he doesn't die, but of course if he doesn't go, then he's fine too. Well, if he, if he, if he doesn't go, then is, he, is Robert presiding over this moment, and does he do the same thing Ned did? There's a lot of factors at play here. I fully endorse your theory. I think it would have played out in some shape or form. I just don't know how much, to, how many other things would have to fall in line to make it work. Well, we can spin out alternative timelines. But the, the point being, I think that the groundwork was laid for a Baratheon-Lannister uh, conflict. But Very much so. uh, that doesn't happen. But anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to the <laughs> plot. This clearly affects Ned, this, this story of, of what the Mountains men did. Uh, and he calls for Lord Beric Dondarrion. Who uh, is a very uh, chin up looking fella? He he walks up very proud, sticks his chin up, and says, yes, "Lord Hand, what do you want of me?" And he says, "You need to lead a hundred men to go arrest Sir Gregor Clegane." Ned denounces Sir Gregor, strict Gregor, strips him of his titles and lands and sentences him to death. Then he goes a step maybe too far, and he commands a raven to be sent to Castle Rock, informing him that. Uh, informing Tywin Lannister that he has been summoned to court for, to answer for the crimes of his banner men. If he doesn't arrive in a fortnight, he will be branded a traitor and enemy of the crowd. Crown, Littlefinger questions if it's a good idea to, quote, yank the lion's tail. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> he says Taiwan is the richest man in the Seven Kingdoms and said gold win war, wins wars, not armies. Ned responds, how come Robert is king, not Tywin Lannister? Good line there from Ned. But I think that he really has, I don't want to say overstepped his bounds because I think what he's doing is just. But man, has he thrown, he has opened Pandora's box here. I mean, it, it's perfectly just. It's perfectly in keeping with Ned. It's perfectly in keeping with his authority, his, his hand of the king. However, he should be, and I think he is, fully aware that he just started a war. I mean, you can blame Tywin for put, for allowing the mountain to do this, but in terms of demanding that Tywin come to court to answer the crimes of his bannerman, Ooh. Tywin's never going to do that. No. Ty- Tywin will not march. Tywin will not come to King's Landing without an army at his back. Yep. This is war now. Um, and I love the various reactions from Pycelle and Littlefinger but from knowing now where each one is coming from in terms of their motivations. For Pycelle throughout this is trying to misdirect or minimize or explain away what's happening because he's a loyal Lannister toady. Um, <laughs> Wait a second. Also, what was that word? Toady? Toady. That's a word. I know it's a word, but I don't know what it means or where you got it from. <laughs> Stooge. How about that one? You happy with that one? Yeah, I mean, it's just, I found it interesting. Don't get, don't get defensive on me. All right, go ahead. <laughs> uh, it, it's also the practical case that he, Pycelle also probably wants to actively avoid a war that he inevitably sees coming. Littlefinger, yep. on the other hand, as we talked about, is just very, very blatantly trying to lay out things for Ned so that Ned gets the plot, which Ned obviously already has a command of. Chaos is a ladder. Of... What? What'd you say? Chaos is a ladder. Oh, yeah. He's very much trying to stoke the chaos by which he can rise in. and um, But he tries to cover it a little bit well at the end by trying to offer Ned counsel that what he did was just, but it's probably going a bit too far. To which, you know, what do we think of Ned's line at the end about, you know, if gold was, gold was the only thing to decide who became a king, then Tywin would be king. I think it's literally true, but it's adoring the fact that Tywin, though he's not in power... We've seen the effect that the Lannisters have in terms of essentially ruling the realm by other means right now. Well, it's a lesson that Littlefinger needs to learn, and he doesn't learn it here. He doesn't learn it in a similar scene in season two, which that's a scene where uh, Littlefinger basically threatens Cersei. Mm -hmm. uh, And she commands her, her royal guard to do a number of things to kind of bully Littlefinger. And at the end says, hey, execute him. And Littlefinger's like, whoa, what? And she goes, no, power is power yeah and so this is and, and he I, don't, I still don't think he learns this through his death in season seven where he still seems to think that having information is enough to save him when sometimes it's just a matter of how many men do you have at your back and he put mm-hmm. himself in a tough situation in season seven um when he he came with an army that wasn't loyal to him as a matter of fact yeah. he was much more loyal to the potential adversary he could have in sansa uh, at least somebody that he has um, instigated problems for, uh, yeah. because you know that that's the daughter of the you know Lysa Aaron's sister. And I think this is a, a big difference book and show in terms of describing this character. Where the show, as you said, this is being put forward as a fatal flaw of an otherwise intelligent man that he continually get, fails to learn this lesson. He continually fails to either believe or accept or conclude that actual force loyal to me is a necessary thing rather than just being the man behind the throne at all times and succeeding in that regard. Show Littlefinger doesn't ever seem to get this and it, it spells his ruin. 
Book Littlefinger is abjectly aware of this, and so never puts himself in a situation where he could be hurt in that way. He would never confront Cersei directly, and he would never be the one who actually rides with the army. He'd just send them and stay comfortably back at the Eyrie to dictate from there. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's just a they portray... I know, you, And you've had this point, Spencer. You were on this early about how they... I don't think the show does the character justice. No. But, you know, he at least in season one, two, three, it's it's a little bit closer to the books. It's closer to the books, and it ju- it focuses on the achievements. It just I felt like they they too quickly got to the end of the what they knew Littlefinger had done from the book text, and then just struggled to invent new things for him to accomplish to remind us of the skilled adversary that he is. Right. Okay. Anything else on this scene? No. No. Then we finished the scene, and we're getting on to one of my favorites. I trialed by combat. All right. We cut to the eerie. Now this is one of the first sequences of season one where there's like a battle or a fight uh i'm not going to spend a lot of time on the recap here because there's not much to say um braun fights Cerveris. uh they're they're brought out near the moon door the moon door is open and they start to fight it looks like braun's trying to tire out Cerveris, which that checks out with his logic uh spencer in later uh seasons especially when Tyrion is being held uh, mm-hmm. For supposedly killing Joffrey, and he demands a trial by combat. And Bronn comes and visits him, and he says, "Well, maybe I could tire them out now. Maybe I could dance around." Like that's the same thing he was doing here, right? So he does. Cerveris has this big, heavy armor on, and it works. It looks like Cerveris gets gassed a little bit. Uh, Bronn eventually cuts him, knocks him down, then shoves his sword in Cerveris's neck. Lysis screams, "You don't fight with honor!" <laughs> Bronn says, "No, he did." Wonderful line. <laughs> Tyrion, Wonderful takes, line. <laughs> Tyrion takes his purse from Sir Roderick, gives it to Mord, and leaves muttering, Lannister always pays his debts. Yeah. It, now, one thing to point out here uh, before I let you go on this, because I know you really like this scene. I would like to point out that this scene really accurately shows just how dumb Robin Aaron is. Because when the fight's over, Cerveris gets a sword through the neck, he flies out the moon door, and Robin goes, Is it over? Even Mord knows it's done. <laughs> Even Mord. He is aware yeah. that the trial by combat has ended and Robin does not. So, oh yeah. my gosh, he is, yeah. he is playing behind the curve. Yeah, Robin's still got a little smile plastered on his face as Mord is just kind of obsequiously walking over to get uh, Tyrion's shackles off. It's it, 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 That kid is not just simply, you know, developmentally challenged due to Lysa babying him. He's actually just dumb. Yeah, he's real dumb. All right, but, yeah, what do you want to talk it, about it, with this scene? Yeah, it's not. It's hard for us to describe combat, like other than like describing it line by line. It's just a well done scene, as you talked about. It's very much setting out that Bronn is not only a very skilled adversary; he's an intelligent one too. He's fighting his opponent. He's using what advantages he has. He is purposely tiring him out and using the room. He's most most of the times we talked about before. He's letting um, Servardus swing. He's just dodging the blows and letting him use the extra energy to avoid them. And so it is a veritably well-played-out fight of how somebody equipped like Braun is, using his advantages, would do it. And as you said, it pl- it's, rings true for every other time we see Braun fight, that he is a very cagey warrior in terms of knowing his opponent and fighting his opponent in ways that he can win. And so it plays out very well here, and I enjoy Tyrion's reactions throughout. He's just the only person in the room cheering what's happening while everybody else is just staring in abject horror. <laughs> yeah, now, uh, great acting there by uh, Peter Dinklage. All right, well, anything more on this scene? I mean, it, this is, you know, you got got to get to a point in the plot where Tyrion is freed, and this is, they've got us there. No, we, we, 
we leave a scene here that I very much enjoy and move on to a scene that just frustrates the crap out of me. Not because it's a bad scene, it's well done, but it just shows how far a character has to go in later seasons. Yeah, so that's Sansa, you're a Sansa apologist. Let's jump into King's Landing. Septa Mordain is questioning uh, Sansa about her hair. It's in a Southern fashion. Sansa asks if the Septa even has hair. She says, yes, do you want to see it? Sansa says, no. Sansa then asks where Septa is from. It's amazing to me that this lady's been around her that long and Sansa's never thought to ask where she's from. That is that is a condemnation of where that character is at this point. Uh, and the Septa starts to explain and Sansa says, oh, wait, I don't care. Ugh, I fucking... <laughs> Sansa, you know where I stand with Sansa. I'm not a big fan, uh, but this, uh, is, this is particularly indefensible. I'm full, with, I'm full with you, season one. I mean, I liked how excited Septa Mortain was to tell the story. You can actually see her visibly perk up that she's finally getting to say where she comes from. That Her ward is finally curious to answer some, ask some questions about her background. And Sansa just shuts it down like the snotty 12-year-old she is. Awful. Uh, Joffrey comes in, and we get the soft lighting. This is soft lighting, Joffrey. This, yes. is a, this is a tender Joffrey, and he apologizes to Sansa for being an asshole. He gives her a necklace and tells her she's his lady. And he'll never do anything to harm her ever again. And Spencer, the Maury Povich lie detector, also determined that is a lie. You know, I I don't always agree with the Maury Povich lie detector, but I think this one is proving pretty accurate here. I love that Septim Ordain is barely even biting her tongue in the background as the scene is going on. That's true. But they, they clearly gave that actress stage notes that she was supposed to seem frustrated because she re- she's visibly showing the audience that she is not buying the horse shit coming out of Joffrey's mouth. Now, from Sansa's perspective, though, this is her every dream come true. She's getting to live her prince's dream. Her prince has come to her and has promised her the world. She's just beaming with every little longing thought she's ever had in her little brain. And, oh, God, is it going to go to hell before this season? This season's over? We're going to get married and I'll have his babies. Oh, oh God. God. All right. <laughs> Anything more on this scene? No, we're going to get to that scene here in a second. All right, we cut to my favorite scene of the episode. What? Uh, we're in the north. I love this scene. So Theon is on horseback and he comes upon Roz, who is in a turnip truck. Literally on the back of a turnip truck. Which, I don't know, Spencer, you're from Charlotte, North Carolina, so you're not really from the south. Like, Shut up. Rode in town on the back of a turnip truck? That's that's an expression that you say in the south. And they literally put Roz on a turnip truck. And I will give this show this. It is a realistic portrayal of prostitutes. Because prostitutes are very industrious, very practical. It's probably the cheapest way... For her to get to King's Landing, she knows she's going to have to have some coin when she gets there to get started, mm-hmm. uh, to establish herself. It's great. Theon is just so dismissive. He's like, you're going to King's Landing on the back of a turnip truck? Uh, and then Theon, he, like, I know he likes Roz, but Roz understands him. So this this dialogue between the two of them is so great to me. So Theon says that there would be a thousand girls just like her in King's Landing. And she says, guess I'll have lots of company. <laughs> So Roz is just great. She can she can parry his insults uh, and not let them land and, and affect her emotionally. I think it's really great. Uh, Theon asks Roz why she's leaving, and she says she heard that Ned was attacked by Jamie Lannister's men in the streets of King's Landing, and therefore she's maybe not so accurately deduced that all the men of the North would be walk, marching off to war. So I know you wanted to jump in there, Spencer. Do, what, do you have something to say about uh, Roz and Theon? I mean, I was actually going to jump in with your um, appreciation in terms of describing the uh, the life and industriousness of prostitutes because it's, it's an interesting thing to focus on in history. Like, prost- A lot of experience, prostitu- huh? Shut up. Uh, prostitution is often described as being the world's <laughs> oldest profession for a reason. You yeah, laugh in the bathroom in your past. Um, 
But it's, even in our American history, it was the foundation of towns. These were some, like, the first female businesswoman going out and founding the West. We like to view the West as cowboys and Indians, but in reality, most of the townships that sprung up were emerging around brothels that women were setting up out, out in the wilderness. So I liken the keeping that Roz, that we see here, and of course this episode, and of course this series, is one of the more liberated and industrious-minded people that we meet, in terms of that she's reading the situation that war's coming, everybody's going to ride south, I got no business or future here. I'm going to go where the money is, where the future is. And so she's riding off to her destiny on a turnip truck. Well, but that's that's the point here that I hit Roz with. I'm not sure that this logic was great. I mean, she ends up being right. They do march. Right. Well, but they do march off to war. But at this point, do you think she's really making an informed decision about war, or is she just supposing that she heard that Ned Lannister got uh, Ned Lannister Ned uh, Ned Stark got attacked by Jamie Lannister, and therefore there would be war? Because you know, there's other events that are probably going to lead to war. But as it stands now, the simple attack from Jamie to Ned has not started war. Matter of fact, Ned is still handed the king. He's, he's sitting on the throne. Uh, you know, dealing with things while King Bobby B's out getting his hunt on. She isn't wrong, so we have to give her that, we have to give her credit. It does play out exactly as she describes in a variety of ways. So she has that to Ah, I think she lucked into it. It was bad logic. She she may have well lucked into it. It also may well be that she's kind of tired of being a big fish in a small pond. I mean, she's pretty much regarded as kind of being a legendary beauty in the North. Everybody, everybody that's everybody talks about her. She may just, you know, be tired of being isolated up in the, uh, this cold and remote area when she feels like she can wield her talents to more profitability and more populated and wealthy parts. Hmm. Sounds like you understand that business model pretty well. Yeah, no, I mean, she actually does pretty well for herself in King's Landing, so that gets borne out. So I like that theory. So uh, she then uh, pushes back against Theon. She says, well, what happened if I stay here? Well, I become Lady Greyjoy. And Theon dismisses this. And I'll tell you, Spencer, I'm going to posit this. I'm going out on a limb. That would have been the best thing to ever happen to Theon. If Theon if, had just married Roz. If Theon had married Roz and set down a life in the North, yeah, he would be a remarkably happier character. The world would be a happier place if that scenario had played out. God, he and he so dismisses and it's like, well, dude, you're only talking to her right now because you clearly have feelings for her. The first time we ever saw you with her, you complained that you didn't want to pay for it. Now, let me tell you something. Um... He's not going to say that if he didn't have real feelings for her, right? Like, there, there's no... Like, he's not being cheap there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't think he wanted to sail. I think that he actually likes her, and that's why he's talking to her here. So it's ridiculous that he dismisses her, but, you know, early Theon, a lot of ridiculousness. Uh, she says... Um, she starts to ride off, and Theon says he wants to see it one last time. She says, see what? He throws her a corn, uh, coin. She flashes him, and Theon says, I'll miss you. And she gives the hand Solo-esque response of, I know. <laughs> It's a shame for Theon, because this is really one of the few human connections we see him have uh, in all of the first season, in terms of somebody that he actually has a bit of an emotional connection with, that he actually likes, and she's riding away and he will never see her again. It's kind of sad, really, because he's not a likable character at all in season one. But with her... he's still human. With her, he kind of is, right? I mean, she's able to deal with him in a way that minimizes his problematic sort of traits, right? Yeah, she has a very good handle on him. and is Well, she's probably been working him for years, and so she has some experience in that regard. But, yeah, she... Is, working I, him? I is that a, is working, a, a, working him a technical term in the industry? I don't know. I'm going to sit you down on Whiskey on the Weekends, and we're going to have a long talk, sir. But moving on. 
right. Anything more? I, uh, I just love this scene. I think I think the actress who plays Roz and the writing for her is really great. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, it's a it's a simple little scene, but it plays out very well. Um, but yeah, no, nothing else to add there. Uh, we're cutting to one of my favorite uh, Arya Ned moments, so I'm happy to go into it. Oh yes, Ned sits Arya and Sansa down and tells them that he's sending them back to King's Landing. And Ned seems like it, this is actually paining him. I don't think he likes this. And I, I think it's because, and you tell me, Spencer, what you think. I think it's because he knows it's going to upset both his daughters. He drugged them there in the first place. And I think he also, in a way, may feel like he's failed. He has not been able to create a safe space for them, such to the point that he he has to get, get send them back to King's Landing and get away uh, from all the threats that are are there. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I agree with all of that. I'll throw on as well that so much of Ned's decision-making is built around the protection of innocence. I mean, he is willing continually throughout this series that every decision he makes, risk himself or risk the nature of his position to protect the people that he feels obliged to protect from harm. And his daughters are first and foremost in that regard. I'm betting Ned's basically going to send his entire guard with them to protect them and just leave himself alone in King's Landing. Yeah, which I think he... he... <laughs> he certainly hasn't wielded control of his guard in such a way to keep himself uh, safe, as we saw with the attack on the brothel. So then Sansa immediately says, it's not fair! And let me tell you something about Sophie Turner's accent. It is the exact opposite of Littlefinger's in that hers gets better and his gets worse. It's like that sort of like weird <laughs> graph where one line goes up, one line goes down. Like that's that's what's going on here. Because her accent in season one, especially when she's screaming and yelling, is so cringy. Yeah, I mean, I tr- maybe will try to explain it that she's, you know, when she's not, you know, emotional excited, she's kind of putting on a voice and an accent. We're seeing at these moments what her real accent is. But in reality, she's just a junior actress who had an firm probably grasp of the role yet. No, it's terrible. <laughs> Great moment where Arya just says, are you dying? Because you lag. Is that why you're sending us home? Now... <laughs> The writing for Arya, young Arya, is so great. She just had such a wild imagination. Like, you can tell she's just out on a limb. She's already considered that her dad might die from this leg injury. And she's just out here in left field like, oh, is this the case? And it blows Ned back. He doesn't even really know how to respond to it. No. No. Uh, Arya says she wants to stay to continue her dancing lessons. Ned says this isn't a punishment. He's trying to calm them down. He says... "Um, He's sending them away to to keep them safe. Uh, And Mm -hmm. then there's this amazing scene where Sansa says she's supposed to marry Joffrey. She loves him. She wants to have his babies. And Arya snarls seven hells. <laughs> I, I, love, I love that. Uh, I also love the follow-up of where Ned tries to tell her, uh, just, you know, calm down, calm down. I'm going to find you a match that's more worthy of you. It'll be great. <laughs> she responds without any understanding of what she just said. I don't want someone brave or gentle or strong. I want him. Yeah, I got the full line. Uh, So Ned says, when you're old enough, I'll make you a match of someone who is worthy of you. Someone who's brave, gentle, and strong. I don't want someone who's brave and gentle and strong. I want him. Then what happens? (laughs) I I adore the reactions both Arya and Ned have, where Arya just openly starts smiling and laughing. And Ned has to put his face down because he's just laughing along with her right now. Yeah, he looks over at Arya and it's like they connect. Yeah. Uh, and then it's almost like Ned seems to regret having laughed in Sansa's face. Like he tries to pull back. Uh, and then Arya just come in with the roundhouse. The lion's not a stage you idiot. He's a stag like his father. He is not. He's nothing like that old drunk king. Now this gives Ned an idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would pot. Like, so I've talked about this on our season one coverage. I will continue to talk about this through the end of season one, or at least till Ned gets whoop, beheaded. 
I think that Sansa in season seven talking about Ned is such revisionist history. She acts like they're so close. No, they are not. You're a prick to your dad. You don't connect. Everything he says, you dismiss. You want a life completely different than what he wants to give you or what he has had himself. Like, and then in season seven, she's just talking with Arya like, oh yeah, remember when we both loved dad? Arya was very restrained and not calling her calling her out on that and being like, oh, I seem to remember me and my dad being close and you being a jerk to him. It's one. It's an interesting thing. I'd forgotten Septimore Dane kind of calls her out on it several times this season, including this episode where she tells him, oh, you're dressing like a southern lady now. Don't forget where you're from, though. It's important to remember your family. It's important to remember your background. But Sansa's, over the course of the season, just thrown all that away. She has fully embraced the role of a southern lady who's going to be a queen. It's going to have royal blonde babies. And she's just, every aspect of her being is focused on that goal. And she's just left all the rest of it and her love for her family behind in that process. So one last thing from the scene I really liked is Ned then asked him to go. And you notice Arya grabs Sansa's arm and pulls her out of the room. <laughs> like Arya has accepted this. She's like, okay, dad said we need to do this. I don't want to. But we got to. Sansa's still there like, no, it's not fair. And then Arya just grabs her arm and says, come on, let's go. <laughs> Arya probably also reasonably bets because her dad didn't say no, that she's probably going to get to bring Syria with her. Yeah. Maybe, but she also just seems to, when Ned tells her something, yeah, she she sits and listens to him, and I think that's the only person we've seen her do that with, other than Serio. Um, whereas Sansa just doesn't; she's just shut off. Like, I mean, when Ned's trying to reason with her, she's not she's not listening. All right, and we, we've talked before about how much we adore the relationship that Arya and Ned have in the show, and the act the two actors have on the show. It, yeah, clearly, the the in terms of uh, Ned's relationship with his children, Arya is. Definitely at the top of the list in terms of how close he is with her, particularly compared to Sansa. Agreed. Uh, all right, well, then Arya and Sansa leave the room, and Ned sits down. He opens the book titled The Lineages and Histories of the Great Houses of the Seven Kingdoms. This is the book, if you remember from previous seasons, that John Aaron uh, got from Grandmaster Pycelle right before he was poisoned. Uh, Ned flips to the Baratheon section. He notes that Ori's, Axel, Lionel, Stefan and Robert were all black of hair. Joffrey is golden hair. And just by way of background, Ned's literally going back to the first Baratheon and then going and then going forward. Oris was the original bastard brother of the of, a, of the Aegon the Conqueror. So this has been a long family line of black-haired people here. Yep, yep. So he seems to have finally connected the dots. This is presumably what John Aaron connected the dots with uh before his death anything else on this scene no i mean it's it's well played out in terms of how ned would realize this in terms of a you know it's a pretty basic you know punnett square genetics that he's working with here but it makes sense that this would be something that would reveal at this moment and as you say i feel like this reveal was inevitable uh i just and in that case it's just a testament to how lucky cersei gets in terms of how this plays out that she's able to survive uh, Ned's knowledge and Robert's wrath. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. We can cut to the final scene of the episode in Vase Dothrak. Uh, Danny, Jorah, and Cal Drogo are all having fun at a feast. I gotta tell you, man, the Dothraki parties look lit. Yeah, this is one hell of a dance party they're throwing right here. This looks fun. Unfortunately, every party has that one guy who got drunk before he even showed up and is here to disrupt the festivities. Yeah, I tell you, Spencer, a lot of nudity at a Dothraki feast. Uh, I mean, if they're there to eat, I mean, what? Do, <laughs> there's a lot of nudity. Uh, hey, they're there looks, to eat. 
It looks like they, oh my gosh, oh, working blue. Uh, so then it looks like uh, they're e roasting either a dog or maybe a small goat. I'm very interested in the food uh, from this world. Everybody gives George R. R. Martin crap for going on for pages about food, and I'm one of the few people that treasure that because I'm a big mm -hmm. food guy. Uh, I, I would bet it's a dog, knowing what we know of Dothraki culture, but that's probably not what people want to uh, assume, so let's assume it's a small goat. <laughs> Viserys comes in, clearly drunk, and screams, ah, Daenerys! <laughs> Just is at 11 right away. <laughs> Danny, uh, he, you know what is so funny, though? Like, um, I don't know if you've ever been around, like, couples. And one of the other two, uh, one of the two in the couple, you know, will routinely have too much to drink and, and actually change personalities as, as opposed to people like like yourself who you drink and you, you, your personality doesn't change. Mm -hmm. Um uh, she, I think she heard that first word, Daenerys, and she knew, like, oh, my God, he's drunk. Get him out of here. Because immediately she goes to Jor and says, oh, he has to leave. Get him out of here. Oh, yeah. uh, Jor tries, to his credit, um, but <laughs> uh, Viserys claims that uh, Jor can't touch him because he's the dragon. Quick new segment here, Spencer. Um, in cringy lines of the show, and there's been some. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No one touches the dragon. Where is that? That's got to be like top five, right? It, it, I mean, it's it's the kind of cringy of where it is purposefully cringy. It's perfect for the character in terms of just the pomp and the circumstance that's associated with this just lousy line. Uh, so it ranks high, but in a different category than like, say, poor writing kind of cringy. I agreed, but I think Where Are My Dragons has to be up there from Danny. And then I think also the reference <laughs> to 20 Good Men from Ramsey Bolton. Yeah, uh, the, is probably on that Mount Rushmore. Yeah, I, I, I offer that those two lines compete in the other category too, in terms of just bad writing as well. Yeah, um, Viserys says he's there for the feast. Caldrogo responds, "Okay, here's your surprise for the episode, Spencer. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking some Dothraki." Oh God, you you have it in front of you. Kamal Akto Omiagan. That's pretty good. Which Jorah roughly translates to, "You have a seat at the kids' table." Uh, Viserys says there is no that is no place for a king Cal responds you are no king Westerosi low key one of the sweetest moments of the show is how they slide in that the Cal is learning the common tongue mm -hmm. with Danny yep he clearly can understand some of what Viserys is saying and is even able to speak a few lines to him they don't come right out and say it I don't think there's ever like you know, like a copious amounts of, of on uh, on screen seeing Danny teach Cal Drogo, but he's learning. So I thought yeah. that was kind of sweet. Mm -hmm. uh, end of sweet things. Viserys draws his blade. <laughs> Spencer, yeah. Spencer, this isn't going to work out. No, no, no aspect of this works out well. He's he's just so cocky. He's like, they can't stop me because I've got a sword out. Yeah, that's going to play out well. Any of those guys in that room can beat you barehanded, son. Yeah, it's not going to work out. So Cal gives one of his blood riders a look. And it's it's funny because it's kind of like the thing of like, um, like if you have like a kid that's acting up and one of the parents likes look, looks toward like the older child. Like you can think of like a parallel from like season one, episode one, when yeah. Arya is throwing food at Sansa. Cats and Cat gives a look at Rob like, go deal with him. Like, Cal gives the same look to his blood rider like, what. So the guy gets up to flank um, Viserys. So Viserys, mm -hmm. Viserys um, to him, is now surrounded. He's not in a good position. And then he proceeds to threaten Danny by poking a sword at her belly. 
now doubling down on the bad decisions here it seems to me like when he does that danny's look changes Mm-hmm. And the actress actually, I think this is how this is how I interpreted the scene. That's the moment Danny knew there was no ways out, no way out for Viserys. He was going to die. I agree. I mean, you can just see even the tone and manner of her, of her voice changes, where previously she's pleading with him, and after that, she's very matter of fact. Yeah, he even goes so far as to say that if the cow does not give him an army, he would take her away. And he would cut out Danny's unborn baby and leave it for him. <sighs> now, this is not, go ahead. Yeah, so this is not a pleasant person we're dealing with. I don't care how drunk he is. Just the fact that he's had that thought and laid it out before everyone says volumes about this person. Yeah, and, and make no mistake about it, Cal Drogo knows what he said here because one of Danny's handmaids immediately crouches down and starts to translate for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the mood changes. Cal looks very serious, and he says, "Unan shakte mana me mezolak, unan shakte mi fenoho shora, mama kweve afina mora atihimai." Danny translates that, says that he told Viserys he can have an army, and that he will have quote a golden crown that others will tremble to behold. Yeah, mm. and I don't. I'd always assumed that this was actually selective translating on Danny's part, but I looked it up. No, she. This is literally what the what Drago said. That's a very poetic little line by our by, by our, uh, our our cow here. This cow gets up, comforts Danny, motions for his guards to take Viserys. He takes what looks to be a golden chain. I know you have some comments on this. Puts it in a pot <laughs> over the fire. I want to know what happened. Why, why didn't you just save that stew? That pot they did dump the stew out. It was a waste of food. Uh, mm-hmm. He waits till it melts, and he pours it onto Viserys' head. A crown for a king. And he crouches down to look him in the eye as Viserys is dying. I love that he gets down on his level to watch him die. That's just perfect right there. Yeah, that's something else. Um, All right, Spencer, you have a jag on this. Go. I, I got a couple. Uh, one, practically, you just raised. A gold is poisonous. They're not using that pot again. Uh so you don't, you don't want you don't want trace gold in your in your food. Heavy metal poisoning is a real thing, children. Uh, other issue: um, Do you happen to know offhand what the melting point of gold is? Uh, ooh, let me see. Do you have it in Celsius or Fahrenheit? I've got both available. Hmm. So Fahrenheit. I'm gonna say. As you Google. Four fifty. No, I'm not googling. Uh, Four fifty. Uh, according to my Googling, it is uh, closer to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Jesus, really? Yeah. So uh, to put that in perspective, uh, the boiling point of water in Fahrenheit is 212 degrees. Uh, the critical point of water by which no amount of pressure will keep it in liquid state is something like 700 degrees. So we're talking about that if this pot is capable, is capable of melting gold rapidly... Very rapidly. It melts in like a few seconds. It is of a temperature that the water, if you tried to pour water in it, the air radiating off the pot would have evaporated it before it hit the bottom of the pot. This is a level of temperature of where it would be unpleasant to be in the same room if. This is a blast furnace you're talking about of temperatures that's going on in this pot right now. Yeah, (laughs) does not check out. It not, not only doesn't check out there, it also doesn't check out that when he pours this on Viserys, it doesn't A, melt through him, but B, 
almost immediately cools to the point that it has a delightful metal clunk when he hits the ground. Question for you. Uh, Does Cal ever say that he would have a golden crown? Uh, I believe he does. I believe he is. Now, when he says, yeah, yeah, he says, yeah. So, does he is he talking about gold or gold color? Because my point could be maybe this isn't gold. It perfectly possible it could be something other than gold. I don't think they thought that out. And this is on the book too. The the book is a little bit more a little bit more iffy about the time frame for how long it takes to melt. But you're just not melting gold in a soup pot. It doesn't work that way. Uh, It's. It's playing fast and loose for a remarkable scene. This is a wonderful, powerful, shocking, and surprising scene. It's just you kind of have to turn off your thought process in terms of the the process of melting gold for this moment. Yep. All right. Anything else on this scene other than how great my Dothraki is? Uh, Your Dothraki is solid, sir. I think I got to give credit for Jason Momoa for making it a little bit better because, you know, that man is just perfect with his reverberation and power of his lines when you do it. But you're a nice, nice second place, I'll say. Uh, I would like to tell a Jason Momoa story that came from uh, production. So the first season of Game of Thrones was filmed mostly in Belfast, but in some other areas as well. Much more informal than later seasons were. They didn't know if this was going to work. They didn't know if they'd get past the pilot. So everybody was a little bit more, uh, again, informal or friendly. Uh, at least less professional than I think they were in later seasons. At least that's what I've I've heard from stories of the production set. Apparently, Spencer, the first time Amelia Clark, who plays Danny, uh, met Jason Momoa, who plays Cal Drogo, she describes it as she was in conversation and she felt something hit her back. She fell over. She tumbled to the ground. And then Jason Momoa was looking over her, looking over her. He was like on top of her, kind of like playfully wrestling. And he called her wifey. So this is how he introduces himself to the actress he's going to play. He goes up, he rugby tackles her. I mean, I, I, from Amelia Clark's explanation, I don't think he did it in such a way that was actually going to hurt her. It was kind of soft. But he, he says, hey, wifey. <laughs> what That's a really nut. Cute. Yeah, he's a nut, man. Uh, stories about him from the productions that are good. Also, he has a bunch of great tweets later on. Um, mm-hmm. in later seasons where he talks about like, you know, how he's missing her and <laughs> don't forget your first love, like shit like that. <laughs> well, All right. I think we, uh, shall we move on to best quotes here? Cause we, you know, uh, it isn't quite as quote rich as the last episode, but there are some solid lines we found in this one. There are. Um, okay. Uh, do you want to start? I'll pull up my list. Okay. Uh, I'll start. 14... 14- 14 options. Um, All right. I will start. I shall wear this like a badge of honor. Wear it in silence or I'll honor you again. That was my first option. Good choice, sir. That, that is going to be definitely in the running, I feel. Uh, I'm gonna. There's a couple from this, There's a couple other ones just from this scene. Piss on that. Send a raven. I want you to stay. I'm the king. I get what I want. Yeah, that's pretty good. Put on the badge, and if you take it off again, I swear to the mother, I'll pin the damn thing on Jamie Lannister. Good line, good line. I'll do, I'll do one beforehand, just because it's a very different moment for Robert. I never loved my brothers. Sad thing to admit, but true. You were the brother I chose. Yeah. Um, Rob and Theon. You don't have the right to what? Save your brother's life? It was the only thing to do, so I did it. Solid line, solid line. Again, I'd like that, I like that. I like the portraying Rob as being flawed to some degree. That he's kind of being a dick to Theon throughout this scene. 
Uh, I'm going to jump to Serio. There is only one god, and his name is Death. There's only one thing we say to Death. Not today. I would also do, you're troubled. Good. Trouble is the perfect time to train. When you're dancing in the meadow with your dolls and kittens, this is not when fighting happens. I like that Arya does. And Arya does come back and is just like, I don't play with dolls. (laughs) (laughs) She has to make that clear right now. We're not going to let that stand. That cannot be part of the record at any point here. Uh, we're gonna have to. We're, I'm gonna have to book nerd bitching over the background of Serio because he's just so awesome. Um, later, next quote. Uh, I'm the last hope of a dynasty, Mormont. The greatest dynasty this world has ever seen. On my shoulders since I was five years old, and no one has ever given me what they gave her in that tent. Never. Not a piece of it. How can I carry what I need without it? Hmm? Who can rule without wealth or fear or love? He swore an oath to me. Does loyalty mean nothing to you? It means everything to me. And yet here you stand. And yet here I stand. Great line. Great that's, line. That's going to be a hard one to beat right there. Not, nice job, Jewel Bear. Uh, let's see here. Uh, all right. I don't want to say it, but everything that Tyrion says when he's <laughs> confessing. <laughs> I think we can. Can we settle on, I once brought a jackass and a honeycomb into a brothel. Yeah, just. It, that's a good ending for it. I just can't talk about the whole bald man crying thing. Don't want that on the record. That's bad. That's bad. Um, I, even though I tried to get you on the record with it. <laughs> you tried. You tried hard, sir. But that, um, I offer that one. Anything else before we get to Rinley blessing out King Bobby B? Uh, ooh. No, I think we got Rinley. What were the good oh, old days? Ahead. What were the good old days exactly? Mm-hmm. One where half of Westeros fought the other half and millions died. Before that, when the mad king slaughtered women and babies because the voices in his head told him they deserved it. Or way before that, when dragons burns whole titties, cities to the ground. Easy, boy. You might be my brother, but you're speaking to the king. I suppose it's all rather heroic if you were drunk enough and some poor Riverlands whore to shove your prick inside and make the eight. Yeah, credit to Renly here. We've not seen him with this kind of spark in him. Love that. I love that whole sequence because it really it blows Bobby B back. He, he didn't know what to do with him. Man, Rinley is often framed as being, you know, so different from Robert in a lot of ways. He still has the Baratheon spirit and spark in him when he gets roused appropriately. Um, I'm going to offer this one from Ned. It's a long one, but it's a powerful line. In the name of Robert of the House Baratheon, first of his name, King of the Andals and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm, I charge you to bring the King's justice to the false knight Gregor Clegane and all those who share in his crimes. I denounce him and attaint him. I strip him of all ranks and titles, of all lands and holdings, and then, after Pycelle interrupts, send a raven to Castle Rock. Inform Tywin Lannister that he has been summoned to court to answer for the crimes of his bannerman. He will arrive within the fortnight or be branded an enemy of the crown and a traitor to the realm. It's a powerful series of lines from dum, the utmost authority dum, in the realm. Dum, dum, dum. Yeah, that's a, oh, that's yeah. a pretty serious moment. Uh, then from Ned. And how come Robert is king, not Tywin Lannister? Good point by Ned. It's a follow, it's a valid point. Uh, even better point by Bronn. You don't fight with honor. No. He did. <laughs> Very good. Um, I'll miss you. I know. <laughs> yeah, I gotta work in the Han Solo lines. The Unhand Bras do it so well. Uh, I'm gonna cut to the whole scene with uh, Arya, Sansa, Ned. I'm supposed to marry Prince Joffrey. I love him, and I'm meant to be his queen and have his babies. Seven hells. <laughs> when you're old enough, I'll make you a match with someone who is worthy of you. 
Someone who's brave, gentle, and strong. I don't want someone who is brave and gentle and strong. I want him. <laughs> I'm just smiling at our ears with that line. Uh, I'm gonna. Do, this is a kind of a two-parter, uh, so I can. I'll just do the first part of it. And see if you, um, but when um, Drogo is holding that molten pot of gold and looks down on Viserys and just growls at him, a crown for a king, and just drops it on him. Wonderful quote right there. Yeah, almost as good as Kamole acto como agam. What does that one mean? <laughs> you could just be uh, bluffing me. Yeah, no, no, it's true. That's where he tells him, uh, that tells Viserys where his uh, place in the feast is. Okay. Uh, you got another one? I got one I got one last one for the episode. Nope, I don't. Uh, Danny's line at the end. He was no dragon. Fire cannot kill a dragon. Ooh, man. Uh, got some difficult choice for you here, sir. I don't envy you in terms of being emperor best quote. This is a tough one. This is a real tough week because we have a lot of really good ones, but I don't think there's any that are like is like particularly transcendent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, nonetheless, I have a job to do. Best one, season one, episode six. The golden crowd is. You don't fight with honor. No, he did. Great line. Great yep. line. And I feel like that, that is a, a powerful statement line for the show, too. For that kind yep. of pragmatism is clearly valued and those kind of characters succeed, at least in the short term going forward. Okay, now for a little segment we call Book Nerd Bitching. Spencer, take it away. All right, not to let you down. I know how much you look forward to having multiple options with this, but really there wasn't much to bitch about that we haven't already handled. We already discussed horse hearts and the ability for tiny people to eat them. We've already discussed the melting point of gold and its ability to reach that in a cooking pot. So really I only have two book topics that I want to expand upon. Uh, like you, I really, really enjoyed the scene between uh, Jorah Mormont and Viserys Targaryen. I thought it was a lovely scene and I loved that they worked in the Mormont house words. So given that uh, Viserys, King Viserys Targaryen, the third of his name, King of the Andals, the Rhoynyar, and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm, is no more. I wanted to discuss a bit of his background and how he became known as the Beggar King and reached his present and unfortunate position, as well as for uh, Jorah Mormont. As a man from descended from a very old and noble house, how is it he's become essentially a mercenary across the sea? Those topics fine enough by you? Uh, first off, I don't like that I don't have a choice. And also, you're... Your draft legislation is not looking good because you just gave Viserys Targaryen titles. I gave, I, and he is, the, mm-hmm. he is the Beggar King. That is one of his titles. He has several others. Uh, one of, uh, no, none of them. King Bobby B, one true king. All right, <laughs> uh, yeah, get going. All right. Well, in terms of uh, King Viserys Targaryen's other titles, we also have. Um, I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try to put on, put on some Dothraki. Kalre Mar, which means the Sorefoot King, which actually I think they call him in this episode, and Kalragat, the Cart King. Uh, as said, uh, his styled title is the third, third Viserys Targaryen to rule the Targaryen line. He is the uh, second son of Aerys II, Mad King. And what's uni- one thing that's interesting about him was that his older brother Rhaegar, who we often hear about, was older by 17 years. This was an extensive gap in terms of children among his parents, uh, who are again Aerys and um, Rayla, which... Uh, in many ways contributed to the Mad King's paranoia. Uh, during the 17-year period, Rayla had innumerable miscarriages or children that lived for less than a year, 
which only deepened his paranoia. So by the time uh, Little Viserys came about, the Mad King was pretty much heavily steeped in madness. We're talking about that he was having the King's Guard guard his wife's bed every night and guard the baby's bed every night. He was talking about having his um, uh, his food taster every single time before the baby was fed suckle from the teats of the wet nurse to determine that they weren't poisoned. Um, this was the environment that Viserys grew up in, and while he was regarded as small but hale and hearty and with a lot of potential attached to him, various figures that grew up, that were around him as he was growing up, like Barristan, remark that he was very much, even in an early age, steeped in his father's madness. Whether he could have grown out of that or not or gone in a different direction was put fully on pause by uh, Robert's Rebellion, which is, we're talking about this episode, happened when he was seven years old. While Robert's Rebellion was in full swing, and shortly before the sack of King's Landing, he, his mother, and he and his mother were moved off to Dragonstone for safekeeping. His mother very much heavily pregnant with Danny. King's Landing fell shortly thereafter, but Dragonstone remained unassailed for a period of several months afterwards. While Stannis Baratheon was quite literally building a fleet to attack it, because the entire Targaryen fleet was still stationed at Dragonstone and not taken during the course of the war. Uh, after many months passed and Viserys became eight years old, a horrendous storm smacked into the island and destroyed much of the Targaryen fleet while his mother was in labor. Danny was born, for which she gets her name Stormborn, but his mother died. Shortly thereafter, with the Targaryen fleet eradicated and Stannis Baratheon rapidly descending upon their shores, the majority of the Targaryen garrison essentially decided that they were going to just sell the two surviving Targaryen children away for their own protection. Rather than see this happen, one of the last of their loyal retainers, uh, Sir Willem Derry, their master at arms, essentially smuggled them overseas, was able to get them on a boat and get them off to Bravos for their own safekeeping. And there they spent the next five years living in, in the house with the red door with many lemon trees in the yard, which Danny consistently dreams about. Willem Derry was active during this period in terms of trying to support Viserys' uh, claim to the throne, even brokering a secret marriage alliance that was overseen by the Sea Lord of Bravos and signed with uh, Oberyn Martell, the Red Viper of Dorne, that when it came of age and, marched, and uh, marked his claim to the throne, Viserys would wed the uh, oldest, da oldest daughter of the Martell line, Ariane Martell, so as to forge an alliance between the two houses to support his claim to the throne. Viserys was never told about this pact, and as said, after five years, Willem Derry grew ill and died. They were forced out of their house, thrown out by the servants with almost all of their possessions seized, and at 13 years old, Viserys was left with a little five-year-old child and no one else in the world to protect them or care for them. This was the period where he became known as the Beggar King, as he started roaming between the various cities of the Free Cities, looking for some degree of protection and care for he and his sister, as well as support to reclaim the throne. For a period, he was welcomed by various powerful citizens and was moving himself largely because he believed that Robert was sending assassins consistently after them. He was, though, right? You know, we really don't know. Uh, as far as I can tell, I've not actually seen confirmation that Robert was really sending assassins after them. It seems to me more be uh, Viserys' you know, childhood paranoia that they might have been. He might, well, he might well have been doing so, but I don't think there was ever an assassination attempt on Viserys that he was aware of or knew about. Um, that, might be a, that might be a World of Ice and Fire thing. You really got to read that thing. Uh, does it discuss the many assassins sent after them in that? I believe so. I don't, I don't know for sure. I don't have it right here with me to the page, but I, 
I think I read that there. But regardless, you still need to read that because it is really, really good. Although at some point, actually, I bought my mom a copy without getting it for myself. So I need to do it some point or other. Needless to say, neither of us... Amazon and right now. If there were assassins, which there may well have been, they did not get close enough to actually pose much of a threat. Neither Viserys or Danny talk about any assassins in their youth other than Viserys' consistent concern that there were always knives at his back. Throughout these various journeys, um, the level of support and the level of welcoming that Viserys got continued to decrease, to the point that he had to start selling off what few possessions they have, including eventually even selling off his mother's crown, by which Danny remarks that the last joy faded from him, leaving only rage behind. He became started to be known as the Beggar King, the Cart King, the Sorefoot King, to mock him for his consistent roamings and desperate efforts to gain support for his climb to the throne. He even was eventually went to the Gold Company, that which supported uh, the Blackfires against the Targaryen rule, to try to wine and dine them to convince them to support his claim to the throne and give them an opportunity to return to the land which they ancestrally caused home. They ate his food, they drank his wine, and they promptly laughed at him and offered him no degree of support. So the Viserys Targaryen that we see at this point is a child that was forced to become an adult at far too young of an age, descended from a line of madness, and grown up in a consistent cycle of rejection, regret, and loss. He is mad, he is utterly unkind to Danny at every at every stage of her life, but there is a reason in many ways why he is what he is. It is perfectly possible that Danny, if she'd been put in the position of him and had to raise a young Viserys, may have ended up in a very similar path. And um, we'll never get to really see whether he would have had a different opportunity at life if he'd grown up under different circumstances. It's the opinion of some, like Barristan, that, there was always the, that he was always steeped in madness, that he was that side of the Targaryen coin. But it's something we'll never know for sure. All we know is that the Viserys that we see now is a dark and twisted and angry, ineffectual individual because much of his life has been lived in terms of his own impotence. So... That is a brief description of the background that led Viserys to his moment. And uh, as we saw played out in this scene, there is no small amount of foolishness that he... Whatever he could have learned on his wanderings, uh, whatever wiseness, or whatever wisdom that Danny gains as she wanders about over the next two shows, next two seasons and books looking for aid and support for her claim, is something that Viserys clearly never got. There was a level of privilege and looking down upon the world and viewing the world as owing him something that probably denied him an opportunity to actually grow up in the way he needed to to survive. As for uh, House Mormont, oh, hold yeah, on. we got to see if that bill gets out of committee. What you got? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that this one lost in the subcommittee. You didn't even get to committee, uh, and it's not because what you're saying is not true or interesting or whatever. But I just think you were being way too nice to Viserys, and I think that's your nature. You're a nice guy, but uh, and I, you hit on it right at the tail end. There's a lack of humility, and you would think if you have to walk from city to city begging people for help, you'd have a touch of humility. But when he gets with the Dothraki. He still feels like he is, he still acts like this entitled guy. He still feels like everybody owes him everything. And despite all, like all of the evidence that Khal Drogo does not operate this way, he continues to treat Khal Drogo as if he's somebody who A, owes him something, or B, would have any respect for his claim or title. I think it's very much apparent in terms of the people that he views as his allies that are you know, trying to broker this marriage alliance to um, give him a claim, a, a further degree of support for claim to the throne, that they are very much manipulating him to their ends. We've discussed Alira Mopatis and Viserys and their alliance 
or at least their support for each other and trying to put a Targaryen claimant on the throne. But it, it is my view that though they are brokering this marriage alliance to seemingly support Viserys and give him an army of Dothraki to assail the Seven Kingdoms, this is not them endorsing his claim, really, his claim to the throne. This is them using him as a distraction for what they actually want to bring about. That particularly yeah. in the books, they've got their own degree of support in terms of the new Aegon Targaryen who may or may not be really a Targaryen or not, but clearly the one that they actually want to back. And it seems like that they're intentionally using Viserys and the Dothraki as a means to further destabilize the Seven Kingdoms, as a means to weaken the power base of Robert and the other houses, so that whether they're defeated or not at that point, uh, when Aegon arrives on the, on the shores of the Seven Kingdoms with the Gold Company behind him, he can arrive like a, like a saving hero to free them of the Dothraki, to restore order to a weakened kingdom if the Dothraki have been defeated, to really emerge on the scene as the prince that was promised and the king that everyone desperately desires in this dark moment. So even the, yeah. even the allies that Viserys thinks he has are manipulating to his ends and using his vanity in their favor. I just do have a degree of sympathy for the very, very hard and difficult life that this kid has had. Dan even remarks that when they were younger still, when he was still leading her as a five-year-old child of the Seven Kingdoms, that he cared for her. He was her sole protector. She loved him. He only got very, very much darker as the years went on, and he got twisted up in this loathing of the world and resentment and rage as he was continually spat on, looked down upon, thrown upon the streets. As he, as he carries himself, he is the king of the Seven Kingdoms, the rightful king, the heir to the throne. And he's been treated like dirt for years, and he's taken it. He's keep he's been continually trying. It was only as he yeah I don't know man I think uh, I think Danny's an unreliable narrator there a because she was young and b because I think when we first see Danny at the beginning of Game of Thrones, a little bit of Stockholm syndrome going on. Yeah, but she ne she never loses it though. She ultimately resents her brother, but she still has these thoughts going off years into the future. She is she may be an unreliable narrator, but she's the only source we got. So we have to give it at least some degree of credence because we have no other account that we can draw from. Okay. Still failed in the subcommittee. And by the way, I just sent you a copy of A World of Ice and Fire. So now you have no more excuses. You have to read it. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Next, Bill. Yeah, this is the joys of this podcast. I just say occasional inane things and I get gifts. It's lovely. Yep. As for, Next, Bill. As for House Mormont. House Mormont is Yay. One, of your one of your favorite houses. Love House Mormont. It, it's, an it's an interesting house that it is one of the houses that descends back into the Age of Heroes. I mean, this is a house that almost emerges from a Greek myth in terms of the Bear Island, where they're located, in the farthest north of the realm, farther north even than the Umbers, situated in the Sea of Ice. Uh, that House Stark, when they were the kings of winter, claimed this for themselves when they wrestled and defeated the Greyjoy king in a, in a, in a set and arranged wrestling match. <laughs> And that they received Bear Island as a gift, to which the Starks gave it to the Mormonts for in perpetuity forevermore. The uh, House Mormont is, though descended from this ancient history, though very widely respected in the North, comes from a relatively uh, a, a relatively poor island. It doesn't have much in the way of resources, doesn't have much in the way of luxuries, and it is consistently assailed from all times throughout its history by not only the wildlings to the North, but for some reason or another. The, great the uh, Ironborn at pretty much all hours of the day. Uh, part of the reason that particularly Bear Island... <laughs> they didn't like they lost that wrestling match. Uh, apparently this was a grudge that lasted for thousands of years afterwards. <laughs> and it's part of this reason that House Mormont, among more so than any of the northern houses, has a very proud and long tradition of female warriors. Pretty much every woman that grows up in Bear Island learns how to protect themselves, learns the basics, or even 
higher levels of arms because they've had to as a result of the series of invaders from the north and from the ocean off to the west that have been constantly coming to their shores looking to enslave them, looking to rob them, looking, looking to kill them. It's been a practical necessity going back generations. And it's something that's very much proved in the current generations and current surviving members of House Mormont that we see at the start of this series. Looking at the show, we really only get to know essentially three members of House Mormont. Uh, Jor Mormont, the old bear, the leader of the Night's Watch. Jorah Mormont, the exiled black sheep son, and little Liana Mormont, who, at least by the time we get to the later seasons, is the presumptive leader of House Mormont. The goat. <laughs> uh, at least in the books, at this point, uh, there are quite a few other ones around. Uh, when Jorah Mormont, um, Jorah Mormont, at least going back about 20 or so years, was the leader of the house, when he chose to uh, resign to allow his son to take over and join the Night's Watch, he had a uh, younger sister, Mage Mormont, that was still alive and around. When uh, Jorah, and I'll go into how this happened in a minute, uh, fled across the uh, narrow sea to escape punishment by Ned Stark, Mage Mormont stepped in to become the ruler of the house and did a lot to restore its financial situation from the abject ruin that Jorah had left it in. She herself has five daughters, only daughters, it's a notable thing about her, and is known as the She-Bear. Uh, her daughters, Daisy and Alizane, who are the two older ones that we meet, are very skilled in arms. They're professional soldiers. Daisy becomes a member of um, Rob Stark's personal bodyguard. Alizane becomes one of uh, Stannis Baratheon's most successful field commanders and lieutenants when she's uh, ultimately supporting him and his claim to the throne in terms of liberating the North. Notably. Hey, uh, hmm? let me jump in. Um, the Those children that you're talking about, what's the nickname for their mother again? Uh, she is the She-Bear. I know you never fucked a bear. <laughs> they know you never fucked a bear. Anyway, that's a theory. We can get into that later. It, I just want to it is a consistent theory among the fandom that um, Alison Mormont, despite being a, I'm sorry, Mage Mormont, despite being the leader of a noble house, despite being respected among the various other lords of the North to the point that she eats at the table with the Starks at all times, we have no idea where her children came from. There seemingly is no father, not publicly acknowledged. This Mormont's just literally... I got one. <laughs> I got an idea. The Mormont's literally joke Mr. that... Giants, Bane. The Mormont's joke that they just go out and mate with bears. That's the standard joke that they have about where these uh, various children of mage came from. Alice and Mormont also has several little daughters that just, she just kind of shrugs about where they may have come from, which possibly could be just a, t a testament to the empowerment of this uh, family that not only are they able to seemingly have children out of wedlock, but these children bear their name as, an, as as if they're members of the noble house. They don't bear any husband's name. They don't bear bastard names. Because the more... <laughs> Wait a second. Bear their name? Spencer, you are on fire. I try. I really am. <laughs> but it's a persistent theory in the fandom that Tormund Giant Spain, husband to bears, uh, being that he's a wildling, being that we know he's ranged south of the wall, being that we believe he's actually ranged on Bear Island itself, may indeed be the secret father of Mage Mormont's children, and his children may very much be, you know, next in line to lead a great northern house. The amount of support of this is pretty damn limited, other than just basically what I presented before you, but it's a really fun theory to ponder. Um, as said, and this is something I really hated that they cut out of the show. If you look at the show in later seasons when uh, Stannis is making his claim for the north, it looks like his entire army is just mercenaries that he picked up in Essos. Uh, that's the way they frame it. He got money. He got money from the, from the, uh, the the Iron Bank, and then he has an army suddenly. In reality, very large portion of his supporters are his own loyal knights. He actually has very 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 few in the way of uh, mercenary contingents supporting him. 
but a bulk of his army, by the time that uh, he's actually march, marching on Winterfell, is actual various northern lords. When Stannis Baratheon kicks out the remaining of the Ironborn um, that are sit, uh, that are left in the north, he has a strong degree of support, uh, which are... Uh, so, yeah, sorry, I briefly lost you for a second there. Um, when Stannis Baratheon is pressing his claim to the north, one of the things that's advised that he do is actually liberate the north. Uh, and so he goes and speaks to the various northern lords, starts getting a base of support from the um, northern mountain tribes. He also gets the support of House Mormont. Who, when he assails and captures, yeah, yeah, yeah. when he assails and captures Deepwood Mont, um, it is actually Alizane Mormont and a collection of, of elite warriors of, of the Mormont family that are the ones that attack and defeat the Greyjoy ships and burn them to allow for all of Asha Greyjoy's force to be either killed or captured by Stannis and to essentially liberate the North from the Greyjoys in one fell swoop. Now, the King's Prize. Here, here's the interesting thing, though. This is again Alizane Mormont, who is at present the heir to the throne of the heir to the house, the heir of House Mormont. Now that uh, Daisy was sadly killed at the um, the uh, Red Wedding, she's supporting Stannis. But we also know that Stannis got a little got a letter from Little Lyanna Mormont, essentially telling him to fuck off. One of my favorite moments in the book and show. I know I really have cognitive dissonance there. Uh, it's so hard what? for me because Stannis, obviously, one true king, would have been the best king of anybody in the series, and literally on a Mormon. I mean, who doesn't like her? It's a great moment, though. Uh, mm-hmm. But here's the thing: there are essentially are three separate groups. By the time we get to the later books of House Mormont, um, ignoring even Jorah, we'll talk about him in a minute, that are operating without any degree of communication with each other because they're so far apart from each other. Little Little Lyanna is essentially holding court. The youngest of Mage Mormont's daughters at like age seven. Uh, and as far as she knows, the rest of her family may be dead. Bear Island knows no king but the king in the north, whose name is Stark. It's in no way established that she's in communication with any other members of her family line. Alice Ann Mormont is close by. She may have sent a letter to Lyanna separately after she is you know, starting to back Stannis' claim, or she may have, they may have agreed that they're going to send conflicting messages to mess with Stannis and hedge their bets. But she is seemingly leading her own group of a pretty significant contingent of uh, House Mormont warriors in supporting Stannis and fighting against the Greyjoys and marching with him to Winterfell, with her serving as essentially the personal jailer of Asha, of Asha Greyjoy as they're going off in that direction. Um, Another group of uh, Mormonts are Mage herself. Mage and uh, her third and fourth daughter were not present at the Red Wedding. Rob Stark had intentionally sent them, along with the leader of House Glover, into, um, well, to go find Greywater Wash, the um, the uh, ancestral home of House Reed, so that they could secure the neck, that area of swamps that are around Mote Calain, so that uh, when Rob Stark was going to lead his army north to retake it from the Greyjoys, they would have a clear path to do so. She's never been seen since then. All that's been said about her is that that was the last that she was seen, is that she went there and that she's presumably still alive and with the house, with um, Howland Reed and, the, and their base in Greywater Wash. We don't know where they are otherwise, but presumably they're still around and well. And so, officially, she's still the leader of her house. Not that any of her daughters that are out in the field know where she is or know whether she's still alive, to be sure. What a clusterfuck. It is a clusterfuck. Now, a further clusterfuck, we're going to talk about it, is the story of the life of Jorah Mormont. Ooh. I described him as a black sheep. Um, the show continually praised Jorah in a very sympathetic light. Some of it's deserved. 
But would you call him a black bear? Uh, I would call him a black bear. A lot of people call him a black bear, <laughs> which which makes the very sandy colored and not very coarse hair of uh, Ian Glenn not necessarily in keeping with the character. But I don't care anymore because he's perfect for the role. Indeed. Um, Jorah Mormont again assumed the uh, leadership of his house when his father took the black and joined the Night's Watch. One of the first things he, um, before this had happened, though, at a very young age, uh, he'd actually been promised and married a young girl uh, of House Glover, another house in the north, which is something I don't really talk as much about on the show. They'd been together for, I think, like 10 years, and she'd uh, had two miscarriages and sadly died during her third miscarriage. So at the time of Robert's Rebellion, he was no longer married and was technically a widower. He'd marched off of Robert's Rebellion and served served, uh, very admirably. Um, and later on during the Greyjoy Rebellion, he'd been first and foremost in terms of uh, leading various groups of the Star Coast. And when the assault on Pike had occurred, he famously, right behind Thoris of Mir, led the assault into the breach and helped take the castle, to which Robert Baratheon actually knighted him in the surf on, uh, on the Iron Isles. And he had to piss himself during. <laughs> there are many different accounts of what this occurred. Jorah's account is that you know he was abjectly terrified but just felt compelled to help lead the charge. This was no. I'm talking about uh, in the show. Remember when he's talking with Barristan later? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He talks about being knighted, and he's like, "Yeah, I just really had to pee." That was so funny. <laughs> I actually forgot about that scene. Look forward to when we get to that point. Um, this actually begins the real heroic phase of Jorah's life, before a series of events just seemed destined to paint him as a knight of the Seven Kingdoms and a heroic figure, which he just kind of writes off as just pure chance that he was never able to re- replicate again in his life. As said, he became a hero in term, in, in during the Greyjoy Rebellion. Shortly after that, he attended a um, a tournament in Lannisport, where he immediately became smitten with one of the young daughters of... Um... God damn it, my notes just paused again. Sorry, pause again, man. Uh, oh no, I'm not pausing that. What, what, what? We're leaving. We're leaving this in. We're a little behind the scenes. You're leaving. A little break in the fourth wall. The, uh, the listeners get to see what really happens in this Me second. Me and my damn computer. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. It's up again. All right. As said. <laughs> sorry. My computer is back up. He attended the tournament at Lannisport, which is, again, situated in the, in the Westerlands and ruled by House Lannister. There he met for the first time who would be his second wife, Lyness of House Hightower. Fitting what seems to be a theme, uh, she was half his age, blonde, slight of features, very attractive, uh, and he immediately became head over heels in love with her at first sight. Mm. He asked for her favor, inviting in the tournament, which she granted him. And for reasons that he credits as just sheer luck and motivation, he goes on to win this tournament, and this... This wasn't a small tournament. This is like the tournament that's celebrating the Greyjoy Rebellion. This guy went on to defeat, like, two of the best guys that House Frey ever defeated. Friggin' Bronze Jan Royce, one of the most skilled warriors alive in the Seven Kingdoms. Jason Malister. Did you say, hold on, did you say House Frey ever defeated? House Frey ever offered. Sorry. Uh, oh, gotcha. Yeah. House Frey ever offered. Gotcha. Hostian Frey, Ryman Frey. He defeated Bronze Jan Royce. He defeated Jason Malister, regarded as one of the best warriors in all the Riverlands. He went through all of these. He defeated the Lord of Harrenhal. He defeated a, member, a Knight of the King's Guard, if they even like it. Well, it might have been Boris, Boris Blunt, but still, Knight of the King's Guard. Uh, at the end of this tournament, when he's in the, fi- in the finale, he's facing off against Jamie Lannister. 
they go nine tilts against each other. They shatter nine lances against each other, and neither one has been unseated. They're still ready to go. It's so impressive at this point that Robert Baratheon just calls into the tournament and says, congratulations, Jorah Mormont wins. Screw you, Jamie." Not even done fighting, but Robert's so impressed, he just declares Jorah the winner before they even finish. <laughs> I could see Robert doing that. That's so funny. Uh, it's over! <laughs> I give it to Mormont! I would you win Mormont. I would love to see it happen. I would love to see Jamie's reaction. Again, this is happening in Lannisport. Tywin is there. Cersei's probably watching and King King Baratheon just declares, "I declare the homeboy loses." Let's let this guy from the I've north. I've seen enough. <laughs> It'll been great to watch. Immediately after this, Jorah is on cloud 9. He believes he can take on the world and believes that he has a position to request the hand of Lyanna's Hightower. So he goes to Lord Leighton Hightower and asks for it. And he says yes. I mean, I've been double-check this while I'm thinking. I'm, maybe she probably wasn't the, uh, yeah, she was the youngest daughter of the house. She wasn't exactly the heir. But she's still a, a daughter of House Hightower, one of the most powerful and wealthy families in all of the Seven Kingdoms. These are the ones that rule Old Town, where we see the Citadel, where the, where the various uh, where the Meister Order holds base. It's the largest city in all of the Seven Kingdoms. Wealthy-ass family. And they're letting one of their daughters marry this to them, probably unknown lord of a distant, windswept northern house. She briefly, briefly, seems very much into this. She's marrying a guy who's just won a tournament. He's a lord of a house. He's a war hero. And she follows him north. And I wonder on that journey when she realized that this was not what she was hoping for. Because by the time they arrive in Bear Island, which again is so relatively poor that they don't even have a castle, they just have kind of a long hut, She's no longer as happy with her situation anymore. Uh, Jorah, in a desperate effort to try to keep her happy, proceeds to essentially bankrupt his house. He starts importing luxuries, expensive gifts, plans voyages that go all over the Seven Kingdoms. He either builds or buys a pleasure barge that he uses to go all around to the largest cities in the Seven Kingdoms and also go to tourneys where he can compete again to impress her, but unfortunately the magic has been lost and he never wins another tourney again. It gets to the point where he starts, you know, importing various singers and uh, cooks from all of the various impressive cities and houses down in the far south. This is not a house that can sustain those costs, not for long. And so it gets to the point that he is so desperate for wealth that he starts selling poachers on his land to slavers. This message gets back to Ned Stark really damn quick, because apparently Ned actually has a pretty damn, has a pretty efficient spy system in the north that isn't talked about very much. And he goes in person to execute Jorah on the spot, because that's the justice that Ned does. It's, his, it's himself and it's absolute. Particularly when you're violating arguably the oldest law of what... One of the oldest two laws. I'd say guest rights a little bit older, but this one's no slavery is way up there too. Jorah promptly flees, having the honor to leave the blade behind. Uh, that blade, of course, being Longclaw, which had been in House Mormont for 500 years and is a great mystery as to how the hell they got it um, behind, and Mage Mormont assumes the uh, leadership of the house. He flees off, originally planning to go to Bravos, which Lenes finds too cold, too unimpressive, so they go to Lease instead, where it's warmer, where it's a much more pleasure palace kind of environment. He becomes a sellsword, um, but of course in no way can afford the expensive lifestyle that Lanes uh, expects, even now that they're living in exile. 
He goes off in various campaigns, continually trying to get more and more money, taking more and more risks, until he returns home to find that uh, Liness is no longer living in his household. She's no longer living with him at all. She has moved to the household of Tregar Ormolan, a merchant prince of, of, of Lys, who essentially tells Jorah, Hi, she's mine now. You are so in debt that here's your options. I can enslave you now, or you can give her up. She'll be mine for here and after, and you can leave Lise and never return. She's in another place with another yeah. man. She essentially became a concubine, not even a wife, a concubine to this merchant prince. Uh, his chief concubine, if, if we believe the reports now say. Um, according to some accounts, even uh, she, being a high tower, being a person of capabilities in her own way, essentially rules that guy's household now. Uh, Jorah never sees her again. Essentially goes into a wandering phase where he goes off to Volantis, one of the most powerful of the free cities, and lends his sword to various other merchant co uh, mercenary companies. We know that he had some experiences with Brown Bin Plum and the Second Sons. It's possible he may have even participated in the Gold Company for a time. We know he seemingly spent months or even years with the Dothraki, where he learned their language, where they became to respect his skills in arms and uh, dubbed him Jorah the Andal. But when we see him uh, arriving at um, arriving at Danny and Drogo's wedding feast. This is a guy who has essentially long ago lost his purpose, who has just been roving around. And similar to the Viserys that he swears a loyalty to, at this stage his only obsession is trying to find a way to come home, trying to find a way to get a pardon, trying to find a way to restore himself to the life that he believed was wrongfully taken away from him. While the Jorah we see on the show is remarkably humble and admits in some ways his faults and his own poor decision-making that led to his fate, Jorah in the books very much likes to blame others for them, very much likes to cast Ned Stark in an overly honorable and hidebound right for even trying to punish him for what he did, which is something that ultimately leads him to ruin with Danny, with his own ability to admit his faults and accept blame and seek forgiveness. When he actually uh, came into contact with uh, Varys, we don't know. I like to think it may have been a period of a significant period beforehand in his mer in his merchant roaming ways, but we don't know for sure when he became a spy of Varys. But it's something we'll see play out as the season goes on. So a bit of background to one of your favorite houses and a character that I very much like at Booker Show, regardless of his faults. Wow, tour de force there on the Mormonts. You you left out Giora Mormont, but I think we've covered him in previous episodes. I discussed <clears throat> the old bear briefly, but he's but he has intentionally separated from that. Uh, intentionally separated himself from the situation. When he joined the Night's Watch, he gave up all of his claims. He gave up all of his titles. He gave up all of his lands. One of the few moments that we actually see him even discussing them is when um, a scene in the it's seen, it's seen it in the show too of when after John tries to ride off to go join Rob in um, his rebellion against um, the. Uh, the throne, we uh, see the Jor confront him about this. In the books, he also offers that, you know, my sister's riding south too. You know, she's really a battle axe and really not pleasant to be around, and I kind of hate her, but I still love her too, so don't think you're the only one who doesn't want to ride south with a sword to fight for them right now. It's a moment the two of them share in that regard. But otherwise, we don't really see him talk about his house much other than his disappointment and shame about, jo about Jorah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, okay, so you know, like when um, like Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl. Uh, well, it's happened a few times and, now, uh, so yes, yeah, six, uh, or like anybody, right? Uh, and then like the legislative body in that state will make like Tuesday, like November eleventh, like Tom Brady Day. Yes. 
And you know, like how the votes go with that, right? Like it's always like a hundred to nothing. Like, I mean, every, who's not, who's going to vote against? Of course. Them? Who's going to vote against Tom Brady Day in like Massachusetts? <laughs> what are you proposing, sir? That's how this one passed. Oh, wow. I mean, you you dive into uh, the Mormont House in an episode where there wasn't a lot to complain with. Uh, it was it was very close uh, or complain about. It was very close to the book. Uh, good job, Spencer. I'm happy to serve. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating history that I wish we even knew more about. It's there's among the various other northern houses, we get various rumors, or various experience, or various wars they fought with the Starks, or various duels. With House Mormont, we know they got Bear Island. We know they've had a long history of fighting various other people, but details are kind of lacking for like a ten thousand year period. So I, w- I yeah. wish we knew more. All right. Well, I liked it. This has been a fun episode, Spencer. We, uh, we're going to conclude our coverage of Season 1, Episode 6 of HBO's Game of Thrones, A Golden Crown. Next week, you can look forward to Season 1, Episode 7, titled You Win or You Die. Big one. Very big one. Real big one. Looking forward to it, sir. Me too. Uh, signing off. Thanks, Spencer. Talk to you later on. See you. See you.